The Ascetical Homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian Revised 2nd Edition Translated from the Greek and Syriac by the Holy Transfiguration Monastery, Boston, Massachusetts, 2011 Dedication to the Blessed and Venerable Elders Eronimos the Clairvoyant of Aegina Forsake not Isaac Every day one page of Abba Isaac Not more Isaac is the mirror There you will behold yourself The mirror is so that we may see If we have any shortcoming Any smudge on our face In order to remove it To cleanse ourselves If there is a smudge on your face Or on your eyes In the mirror you will detect it And will remove it In Abba Isaac you will behold your thoughts What they are thinking Your feet where they are going Your eyes if they have light and see, there you will find many sure and unerring ways in order to be helped. One page of Isaac a day, in the morning or at night, suffice it you read a page. St. Joseph the Hesychist. If all the writings of the Desert Fathers which teach us concerning watchfulness and prayer were lost, and the writings of Abba Isaac the Syrian alone survived, they would suffice to teach one from beginning to end concerning the life of stillness and prayer. They are the Alpha and Omega of the life of watchfulness and interior prayer, and alone suffice to guide one from his first steps to perfection. Be still, and know that I am God. Homily 1. On Renunciation and the Monastic Life. The fear of God is the beginning of virtue, and it is said to be the offspring of faith. It is sown in the heart when a man withdraws his mind from the attractions of the world to collect its thoughts, wandering about from distraction, into reflection upon the restitution to come. To lay the foundation of virtue, nothing is better than for a man to contain himself by means of flight from the affairs of life, and to persevere in the illumined word of those straight and holy paths, even that word which is which in the spirit the psalmist named a lamp. Scarcely a man can be found who is able to endure honor, and perhaps such a one cannot be found at all. This one might say is because of man's sudden receptivity to change, even if he be a peer of the angels in his way of life. The beginning of the path of life is continually to exercise the mind in the words of God and to live in poverty. For when a man waters himself with one, it aids in the perfection of the other. That is to say, to water yourself with the study of the words of God helps you in achieving poverty, while achieving freedom from possessions affords you the time to attain to constant study of the words of God. And the help provided by them both speedily erects the entire edifice of the virtues. No one can draw nigh to God save the man who has separated himself from the world. But I call separation not the departure of the body, but departure from the world's affairs. This is virtue, that in his mind a man should be unoccupied with the world. As long as the senses have dealings with external things, the heart cannot have rest from imagination about them. Outside of the desert and solitude, the bodily passions do not abate, nor do evil thoughts cease. Until the soul becomes drunk with faith in God by receiving a perception of the power of faith, She can neither heal the malady of the senses nor be able forcibly to tread visible matter underfoot, which is the barrier to things that are within and beyond perception by the senses. 
Reason is the cause of free will, and a fruit of both is aberration. Without the first, there is no second, and where the second is lacking, there the third is held as with a bridle. When grace is abundant in a man, he easily scorns the fear of death on account of his longing for righteousness, and he finds in his soul many reasons for the necessity of suffering tribulation for the fear of God. All things that are thought to harm the body and that suddenly attack its nature, consequently causing it to suffer, are reckoned in the eyes as nothing in comparison with what is to be hoped for hereafter. It is not possible for us to know the truth unless temptations are allowed to come upon us, and a man's mind gives him assurance of exactly this, and further, of the fact that God takes very great forethought for men, that there is no human being who is not under his providence, and this especially he sees pointed out as clearly as by a finger in the case of those who go out to seek him and endure suffering for his sake. But when lack of faith is planted in a man's heart, then all we have said is found to be nearly the opposite. For him, knowledge is greater than faith, since he relies on investigation. Trust in God is not present in everything he does, nor is God's providence for man taken into consideration. But such a man is continually waylaid in these matters by those who, in a moonless night, lie in ambush to shoot down a man with their arrows. The beginning of a man's true life is the fear of God, but the fear of God will not be persuaded to dwell in a soul together with distraction over outward things. For by serving the senses, the heart is scattered, driven away from delight in God. For our inward thoughts, it is said, are bound by their perception to the sensory organ that serve them. Doubting hesitation of the heart introduces cowardice into the soul. But faith can make firm her volition even in the cutting off of the body's limbs. In the measure that love for the flesh prevails in you, you can never become brave and dauntless on account of the host of adversaries that constantly surround the object of your love. A man who craves esteem cannot be rid of the causes of grief. There is no man who, with a change of circumstances, will not be subject to a comparable change in his mind. If desire, as it is said, is the offspring of the senses, then let them be silent who profess to keep their mind peaceful in the midst of distraction. Not he is chased who, in the strain and crisis of combat and struggle, says that shameful thoughts cease within him, but rather he who, by the uprightness of his heart, makes the vision of his mind so pure that he cannot gaze on lewd thoughts without shame. And when the gaze of his eyes is held fast, thus bearing witness to the holiness of his conscience, then shame is like a veil that hangs over the hidden place of his thoughts, and his purity becomes like a chaste virgin being faithfully kept for Christ. There is nothing so capable of banishing the inveterate habits of licentiousness from our soul and of driving away those active member, memories which rebel in our flesh and produce a turbulent flame as to immerse oneself in the fervent love of instruction and to search closely into the depth of the insights of divine scripture. When a man's thoughts are totally immersed in the delight of pursuing the wisdom treasured in the words of scripture by means of the faculty that extracts understanding from them, then he puts the world behind his back and forgets everything in it, and he blots out of his soul all memories that form images embodying the world. Often he does not even remember the employment of the habitual thoughts which visit human nature, 
and his soul remains in ecstasy by reason of those new encounters that arise from the sea of the scripture's mysteries. And again, even if the mind only floats on the surface of the waters, that is, of the sea of the divine scriptures, and its perceptions cannot fathom the great depth so as to be able to grasp all the treasures in its deep, yet even this practice in itself, by the power of its fervent love, will suffice the mind firmly to pinion its thoughts by a single thought of wonder, and to prevent them from running to the body's nature, as one of the God-bearing fathers said. And this, he says, is because the heart is feeble and cannot sustain the evils that it encounters from inner and outer warfares. And you know that an evil bodily thought is oppressive. If the heart is not occupied with study, it cannot endure the turbulence of the body's assault. Just as the heaviness of weights impedes the quick swaying of a balance in a gust of wind, so shame and fear impede the aberration of the mind. In proportion to the lack of shame and fear, there is an abundance of the dominion of liberty in the mind. And just as the decrease in the weight in the pans will be a cause for them to sway more easily to and fro, so an increase of liberty through removal of fear from the soul causes the scales of the mind to sway easily from side to side. Therefore, the mind's mobility is a consequence of liberty, and mental changes are a consequence of aberration. Be wise, then, and lay the fear of God as the foundation of your journey, and in but a few days it will bring you before the gate of the kingdom with no windings on the way. Do not, like the pupils of teachers, over-scrutinize words that are written from experience for the fostering of your way of life, which render your soul great because of the greatness of insights found within them. Discern the purpose of all the passages that you come upon in sacred writings, that you might immerse yourself deeply in them and might fathom the profound insights found in the compositions of enlightened men. Those who in their way of life are led by divine grace to be enlightened are always aware of something, like a ray, noetic ray of light, running between the written lines, which enables the mind to distinguish words spoken simply from those spoken with great meaning for the soul's enlightenment. When a man reads in a common way lines that contain great meaning, he makes his heart common and devoid of that holy power which gives the heart a most sweet taste through perceptions that awe the soul. Everything is wont to run to its kindred, and the soul that has a share of the spirit, on hearing a phrase that has spiritual power hidden within, ardently draws out its content for herself. Not every man is wakened to wonder by what is said spiritually, and has great power concealed in it. A word concerning virtue has need of a heart unbusied with the earth and its converse. For when a man's mind wearies itself with care about transitory things, the concerns of virtue do not awaken his thought to a longing and a quest to gain them. Liberation from material things precedes the bond with God, even though often with some, through the economy of grace, the latter is found to precede the former such that love covers love. Economies usually order is different from the order of the community of men, but as for you, keep to the common order. If grace comes within you first, that is its own affair, but if not, make the ascent of the spiritual tower by the path common to all men on which they have journeyed one after another. Everything that is affected through divine vision and on account of which a commandment is fulfilled is wholly unseen by the eyes of the body. 
every virtuous action that is affected through righteous activity, praxis, is composite. For the commandment, which is but one, i.e. righteous activity, requires both theoria and praxis on account of our corporal and incorporal parts. For the combination of these two is one. For this reason, the enlightened mind understands the commandment in a twofold manner, as formerly the blessed Moses commanded it, namely, what is simple is understood as well as what is twofold. Works having purity as their goal do not shake off the memories, awareness of blameworthy deeds committed in the past, but they take the grief of the recollection away from our mind. Henceforth, it happens that when the recollection passes through our mind, it does so to our advantage. The soul's insatiability for gaining virtue seizes for its own the portion of desire for visible things that, that belongs to her yoke-mate, the body. Moderation adorns all things, for without moderation even things deemed good become harmful. Do you wish to commune with God in your mind by receiving a perception of that delight which is not enslaved to the senses? Pursue mercy, for when something that is like unto God is found in you, then that holy beauty is depicted by him. For the whole sum of the deeds of mercy immediately brings the soul into communion with the unity of the glory of the Godhead's splendor. Spiritual unity is an unsealed and perpetual recollection that incessantly blazes in the heart with ardent longing. And from perseverance in the commandments, the heart receives its capacity for this bond, not figuratively, nor in a natural way. For there it finds material for the soul's divine vision so as to be sustained in this union hypostatically. For this reason, the heart comes to awestruck wonder as the eyes of the twofold senses close, those of the flesh and those of the soul. There is no other path towards spiritual love which forms the invisible image except by first beginning to show compassion in proportion to the Father's perfection, as our Lord said. For he commanded those who obey him to lay this as their foundation. A word born of righteous activity, praxis, is one thing, and beautiful words another. Even without experience, wisdom is clever at imparting beauty to her words, at speaking the truth without really knowing it, and at making declarations on virtue while the man himself never makes trial of it in his deeds. Speech that comes from righteous activity is a treasury of hope, but wisdom not based on righteous activity is a deposit of disgrace. Just as when an artist frescoes water on the walls and cannot relieve his thirst with it, or just as a man dreams beautiful dreams, even so is speech not based on righteous activity. But a man who talks of virtue from the experience of his own labor transmits virtue to his hearer as he that distributes money earned from his own commerce. And as it were, from out of his own possessions, he sows his teaching in the ears of those who give him ear. Such a man opens his mouth with boldness before his spiritual children, even as the elderly Jacob said to Joseph the chaste, Behold, I have given thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. This temporary life is beloved of every man who, whose way of life is defiled, and second to him is the man deprived of knowledge. Well has one said, the fear of death distresses a man with guilty conscience, but the man with a good witness within himself longs for death as for life.
Count no man truly wise who, because of this temporal life, enslaves his mind to timidity and fear. Let whatever good or evil things that befall the flesh be reckoned by you as dreams. For it is not only with death that you will have release from them, but often before death they retire and leave you alone. But if any of these things that befall you should have communion with your soul, then consider them to be your acquisitions in this age, and they will also go with you into the next. If they are good, rejoice and give thanks to God in your mind. But if they are evil, be grieved and sigh. And as long as you are still in the body, seek to be set free of them. Of everything good wrought within you noetically and in secret, be certain that baptism and faith have been the mediators whereby you received it. Through these you were called by our Lord Jesus Christ to his good labors, to whom with the Father and the Holy Spirit be glory, honor, thanksgiving, and worship, now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Homily 2 On Thankfulness to God, in which there are also essential elementary lessons. The thanksgiving of the recipient incites the giver to give gifts greater than the first. He that returns no thanks in small matters is a dissembler and dishonest in greater ones also. If a man is ill and he recognizes his ailment, his healing will be easy. If he confesses his pain, he draws nigh its cure. The pangs of the unyielding heart will be multiplied, and the patient who resists his physician amplifies his torment. There is no unpardonable sin, save the unrepented one, nor does any gift remain without addition, save that which is received without thanksgiving. The fool's portion is small in his eyes. Ever keep in remembrance those who surpass you by their virtue, so as to see yourself always as inferior to their measure, and be ever conscious of the bitter tribulations of the afflicted and oppressed, so that you may render due thanksgiving for your small and inconsequential troubles, and be able to endure them patiently and with joy. At the time of your defeat, when you are bound both with languor and slothfulness, and subdued by the enemy in the most painful misery and wearisome labor of sin, ponder in your heart on the former time of your diligence, and how you used to concern yourself even over the most minute matters, and the valiant struggle which you displayed and how you were stirred up with zeal against those who would hinder you in your progress. Furthermore, reflect upon the groans which you used to utter because of the small faults that you committed owing to your negligence, and how in all these things you took the crown of victory. For thus, with such and so many recollections, your soul is wakened as if from the deep, and is clad with the flame of zeal. Then, through fervent struggling against the devil and sin, she rises up out of her sunken state as if from the dead. She is raised on high, and she returns to her former rank. Remember the fall of the mighty, and be humble in your virtues. Recollect the grievous transgressions of those who of old trespassed and repented, and the sublimity and honor of which afterwards they were deemed worthy, and take courage in your repentance. Be a persecutor of yourself, and your enemy will be driven from your proximity. Be peaceful within yourself, and heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Be diligent to enter into the treasury that is within you, and you will see the treasure of heaven 
for these are one and the same, and with one entry you will be, behold them both. The ladder of the kingdom is within you, hidden in your soul. Plunge deeply within yourself, away from sin, and there you will find steps by which you will be able to ascend. Scripture has not explained to us what the things of the age to come are. And yet, how we might receive a perception of their delight here, without a change of nature and a translation to another place. Scripture has easily taught us, for although it does this by the names of things desirable and highly esteemed, which to us are sweet and precious, in order to stimulate us to a yearning for them, still when it says, which eye hath not seen nor ear heard, and the rest, Scripture has declared to us that the good things to come are incomprehensible and have no similarity to anything here. Spiritual delight is not enjoyment found in things that exist substantially outside the souls of those who receive it. If it were, then the words, the kingdom of heavens is within you, and thy kingdom come, would mean that we have acquired matter of a palpable nature within us, as the earnest of the delight found in that kingdom. For the thing acquired must needs be like the earnest of it, and the whole like its part. And although as in a mirror indicates not substantially, yet it does show clearly in any case the possession of a likeness. But if, as the true testimony of those who have interpreted the scriptures says, this perception is the noetic operation of the Holy Spirit, and it is a part of that whole, then besides that spiritual operation which mediates between the Spirit and the saints through noetic perception, there is no palpable mediation by the senses for the delight of the saints yonder, but instead of the senses. There are only those receptacles of the mind which contain everything in a well-ordered manner. And if we should call this a profusion of light, we do not mean light that is not noetic. The lover of virtue is not he who does good with valiant struggle, but he who accepts with joy the evils that attend virtue. It is not such a great thing for one patiently to endure afflictions on behalf of virtue, as it is for the mind through the determination of its good volition to remain unconfused by the flattery of tantalizing pleasures. No kind of repentance that takes place after the removal of our free will will be a wellspring of joy, nor will it be reckoned for the reward of those who possess it. Cover a sinner so long as you receive no harm from him, and give him encouragement, then your master's loving kindness will bear you up. Support with a word the infirm and those who are grieved at heart, and so far as this lies within your hands, then the right hand that sustains all will also sustain you. Through the toil of prayer and the anguish of your heart, commune with those who are grieved at heart, and the source of mercy will be opened up to your petitions. Weary yourself with constant supplication before God, with a heart possessing a pure, compunctionate meditation, and God will protect your mind from filthy thoughts, that his way may not be defamed through you. Continuously apply yourself to the study of the reading of the divine scriptures with precise understanding, lest by reason of the idleness of your mind your sight be polluted with foreign pollutions. At a time when you think you will not be worsened, do not voluntarily make trial of your mind with lewd reflections which tempt you, because in this way 
Wise men have been darkened and made fools. Do not store a flame in your bosom. Without harsh tribulations of the flesh, it is difficult for untrained youth to be held under the yoke of sanctification. The beginning of the darkening of the mind, once a sign of it is visible in the soul, is to be seen, first of all, in slothfulness with regard to the church services and prayer. For except the soul first fall away from these, she cannot be led in the way of error. But as soon as she is deprived of God's help, she easily falls into the hands of her adversaries. And again, whenever the soul becomes heedless of the labors of virtue, she is inevitably drawn to what is opposed to them. A transition from whichever side it occurs is the beginning of what belongs to the opposite quarter. Practice the work of virtue in your soul and do not concern yourself with futile matters. Always lay bare your weakness before God, and you will never be put to the test by aliens when you are found alone, distant from your helper. The activity of taking up the cross is twofold, in conformity with the duality of our nature, which is divided into two parts. The first is patient endurance of the tribulations of the flesh, which is accomplished by the activity of the soul's insensive part. And this is called righteous activity, praxis. The second is to be found in the subtle workings of the understanding, in steady divine meditation, an unfailing constancy of prayer, and in other such practices. This second activity is carried out through the appetitive part of the soul, and is called divine vision, theoria. As for the first, that is praxis, it purifies the passionate part of the soul by the power of zeal, and the second, through the action of the soul's love, which is a natural yearning, thoroughly filters out the noetic part of the soul. Thus every man who, before training completely in the first part, proceeds to that second activity out of a passionate longing for its sweetness, or rather, should I say, out of sloth, has wrath come upon him because he did not first mortify his members which are upon the earth, that is, heal the infirmity of his thoughts by patient endurance of the labor which belongs to the shame of the cross. For he dared to imagine in his minds the cross's glory, and this is what was said by holy men of old. If the mind should wish to mount upon the cross before the senses have found rest from their infirmity, the wrath of God comes upon it. This mounting of the cross, which brings wrath upon itself, does not result from the first part, that of patient endurance of afflictions, which is the crucifying of our flesh, but results from the desire to ascend to divine vision or theoria, which is the second part and takes place after the healing of the soul. A man whose mind is polluted with the passions of dishonor and who rushes to imagine with his mind the fantasies of the thought is put to silence by divine punishment because he did not previously purify his mind through afflictions and subdue the lusts of his flesh. But from what he has heard with his ears and from the ink of his book learning, he ran ahead of himself to walk in a way filled with gloom while his own eyes were blind. For even those whose sight is sound and who are filled with light, who have obtained grace as their guide, are in peril both night and day. Their eyes are filled with tears, and they are diligent in prayer and weeping all the day and in the night, 
because they fear the journey and the great precipices that will confront them and the illusions of dissembling shapes found mixed with truth. The things of God, it is said, come of themselves without one's being aware of it. Yes, but only if the place is clean and not defiled. If the pupil of your soul's eye is not pure, do not venture to gaze at the orb of the sun, lest you be deprived of your sight, which is simple faith, humility, confession from the heart, and your small labors according to your capacity, and lest you be cast aside in a lone region of the noetic world, which is the outer darkness, outside God, a figure of perdition, like that man who shamelessly entered into the the wedding feast with unclean garments. From extortions and watching, there springs purity of the thoughts, and out of purity of the thoughts, the light of the understanding dawns. From this, the mind is guided by grace into that wherein the senses have no power, either to teach or to learn. Think to yourself that virtue is the body, but divine vision the soul, while both are one complete man and spirit, which is united out of two parts, the physical and the noetic. And just as it is impossible that our soul should come into being and be born without the complete forming of the body with its members, so it is impossible that there be divine vision, that second soul, which is also the spirit of revelation, and is molded in the matrix of the understanding that receives the substance of the spiritual seed. Without the completion of the working of virtue, and virtue is the house of knowledge which is a host to revelations. Divine vision is the perception of divine mysteries which are hidden in things and causes. Whenever you hear of withdrawal or abandonment of the world or of being pure from the world, then first you must learn and understand the term world, not as common, unlearned men do, but in its spiritual senses and how many different things this name comprises. Then you will be able to know your soul, how distant she is from the world, and how great an intermingling she has with the world. World is a collective noun, which is applied to the so-called passions. But if a man does not know first what the world is, he will never come to know with how many of his members he is distant from the world and with how many he is bound to it. Many other persons that with two or three members have parted from the world and curb themselves with respect to these and suppose themselves to be strangers to the world and their way of life. This, however, is because they neither understand nor prudently see that with two of their members they have died to the world while the remaining members live within the body of the world, for which cause they have not even been able to perceive so much as their passions, and since they have no awareness of them, neither have they made an effort to heal them. By contemplative examination, the world is also called the aggregate of the collective noun, which is applied to the separate passions. When we wish to give a collective name to the passions, we call them world, and when we wish to designate them specifically according to their names, we call them passions. The passions are portions of the course of the world's onward flow. And where the passions cease, there the world's onward flow stands still. These are the passions. Love of wealth, gathering objects of any kind, bodily pleasure, 
from which comes the passion of carnal intercourse, love of esteem, from which springs envy, the wielding of power, pride in the trappings of authority, stateliness and pomposity, human glory, which is the cause of resentment, fear for the body. Wherever these have halted in their course there in part to the extent that the passions are inactive, the world fails from its constitution and remains inactive. Thus it was with each of the saints, that while they lived, they were dead. For living in the body, they lived not according to the flesh. Examine in which of these passions you are alive, and then you will know in how many parts you are alive to the world, and in how many you are dead. When you learn what the world is, by distinguishing the matters, you will also come to know your entanglement in the world as well as your freedom from it. But that I may speak briefly, the world is the carnal way of life and the mind of the flesh. Hence, a man's elevation above the world can also be recognized from these two things, from the good transformation of his way of life and from a discernment of his thoughts. Therefore, you may comprehend the measure of your way of life from that which arises in your mind with regard to the things it muses upon in its thoughts, for which things your nature effortly longs, what stirrings are aroused continually, and which are caused by an accidental circumstance, whether your mind has any perception at all of incorporeal thoughts, or whether all its motions are of a material sort, and whether the mind's material quality is something passionate, or only that the thoughts are the imprints of the physical aspect of man's virtuous labor. For the mind involuntarily muses upon the things wherewith it performs the virtues. From these things, last mentioned, the mind, in a wholesome manner, receives the cause of fervor and the gathering of its deliberations, for because of its lack of training, the mind, with a good intention, prefers to labor in a corporal manner, though it does not do so passionately. Observe also whether your mind remains unaffected by hidden confrontations with the imprints of thoughts because of a mightier ardor for the divine, which is wont to cut off vain recollections. These few indications we have provided in this chapter will suffice a man for his enlightenment instead of many books if he lives quietly and has discernment. Fear for the body is often so strong in a man as to make him incapable of any deeds worthy of honor or praise. But when fear for the soul overshadows bodily fear, then bodily fear succumbs before it like wax from the heat of a flame. But to our God be glory unto the ages. Amen. Homily 3 That without toil the soul enters into understanding of the wisdom of God and of his creatures, if she becomes still to the world and the cares of life, for then she can come to know her nature and what treasures she has hidden within herself. When the cares of life do not enter into the soul from without, and she abides in her nature, then she does not require prolonged toil to penetrate into and understand the wisdom of God. For her separation from the world and her stillness naturally move her toward the understanding of God's creatures, and by this she is lifted up toward God, being astonished. She is struck with wonder, and she remains with God. When water does not seep into the fountain of the soul from without, 
the natural water that springs up in her incessantly bubbles up with thoughts of God's wonders. But when the soul is found without these things, it is either because she has received a cause for this from some alien recollection, or because the senses have stirred up turmoil against her by means of encounters with external things. When the senses, however, are confined by stillness and not permitted to venture forth, and by its aid the soul's memories grow old, then you will see what are the soul's natural thoughts, what is the nature of the soul, and what treasures she has hidden within herself. These treasures are the perception of things incorporeal, which of itself is inspired in the soul, without the exercise of forethought and toil for its sake. For a man does not even know what such thoughts could arise in human nature. For who taught him these things? Or how did he comprehend that which, even when understood, is impossible to make plain to others? Or who was his guide to that which he had never learned from another? Such, then, is the nature of the soul. The passions are, consequently, in addition to nature from causes in the soul. Yet by nature the soul is passionless. Whenever you hear in the scriptures of passions of the soul and body, know that this is said in reference to the causes of the passions. For the soul is naturally dispassionate. Those who prefer outward philosophy do not accept this, and neither do their adherents. But we believe that God created his image passionless. Yet I do not mean his image in reference to the body, but to the soul, which is invisible. For every image is taken from a prototype. And it is impossible for a visible image to depict the likeness of something invisible. So you must believe that the passions, as we said earlier, do not belong to the soul by nature. But if anyone wishes to challenge what has been said, we shall ask. Question. What is the nature of the soul? Is it then something passionless and filled with light, or something passionate and dark? Answer. If the nature of the soul was once translucent and pure by the reception of that blessed light, it will be found the same when it returns to its original state. Therefore, when the soul is moved in a passionate way, she is confessedly outside her nature, as the children of the church maintain. The passions, therefore, entered into the soul afterwards, and it is not right to say that the passions belong to the soul, even though she is moved by them. Hence it is evident that she is moved by things from without, not by what is her own. If passions are said to be natural because by them the soul is moved through the intermediary of the body, then hunger, thirst, and sleep would also be natural to the soul because she suffers in these things and groans together with the body, in the amputation of its members, in fevers, in diseases, and so forth. For because of her communion with the body, the soul suffers pain together with it, just as the body with the soul. And the soul is moved to gladness by the body's gladness, and she bears its afflictions. On the soul, the passions and the purity of the mind in questions and answers. Question. What is the natural state of the soul? What is the state contrary to nature? And what is the state above nature? Answer. The natural state of the soul is understanding of God's creatures, both sensory and noetic. The supernatural state of the soul is her movement in the divine vision 
of the supersubstantial deity. The contranatural state of the soul is her being moved by the passions. And this is exactly what the divine and great Basil has said. When the soul is found in accord with her nature, her life is on high. When she is found outside her nature, she is below upon the earth. When she is on high, she is free from the passions. But as soon as her nature descends from its own state, the passions are found in her. It is evident, therefore, that the so-called passions of the soul are not the souls by nature. If this be so, then the soul is moved by the body's blameworthy passions, even as she is by hunger and thirst. But since no law has been imposed on her in regard to the latter, the soul is not to be blamed, as she is in regard to the former passions which are subject to reproach. There are times when God permits a man to do something apparently improper, and he receives, instead of blame and censure, a good recompense, as Hosea the prophet, who married a harlot, as the prophet Elias, who put men to death in his zeal for God, and as those who slew their kindred by the sword at Moses' command. It is said, nevertheless, that desire and anger naturally belong to the soul apart from what pertains to the nature of the body, and that these are her passions. Question. We ask, is the soul's desire natural when it is set on fire by divine things or by the things of earth and the flesh? And is anger natural when it is said that by anger, the soul's nature is excited to zeal on account of bodily desire, envy, vainglory, and the rest, or when it is on, on account of things opposed to these. Let the disputer reply to us on these points, and we shall follow up. Answer. Divine Scripture says many things with a special intent and often uses names figuratively, as, for instance, things that pertain to the body are said of the soul, and things pertaining to the soul are said of the body, making no distinction between them. The sagistus, however, the wise, understand what they read, that is, the intent of Scripture. Likewise, things pertaining to the Lord's divinity, which are not compatible with human nature, are said with respect to his all-holy body. And again, lowly things are said concerning his divinity, which pertain to his humanity. Many, not understanding the intent of the divine words, have stumbled here with a stumbling from which there is no recovery. So too is it with names pertaining to the body and the soul. If therefore virtue is the natural health of the soul, then the passions are an illness of the soul, which befalls and invades her nature and despoils her proper health. Now it is obvious that in every nature health is ant antecedent to any disease which might befall it. And if this be so, so indeed it is, then by necessity virtue is in the soul naturally, by that which is an accident, is external to her nature. For it is impossible that something which is prior should not be natural. Question. Do the bodily passions belong to the soul by nature or by accident? And are the passions of the soul, which she possesses by reason of her connection with the body, said to be hers by nature or as a figure of speech? Answer. No one dares to say that the passions belong to the body only figuratively, but as for those of the soul, 
one must be bold and say inasmuch as it is recognized and confessed by all that purity is a natural property of the soul, that the passions in no wise belong to the soul by nature. For sickness is posterior to health, and it is impossible that one and the same nature be both good and evil. Therefore, of necessity, one must precede the other, and the one which is prior is also the natural, because anything which is accidental is not said to belong to a nature, but to intrude from without. And change follows upon every accident and intrusion. Nature, however, does not change or alter itself. Every passion that exists for our benefit has been given by God. The passions of the body have been implanted in it, for its benefit and growth. And the same is true with respect to the passions of the soul. But whenever the body is forced by a privation of what is proper to it, to be outside of its own well-being and to follow after the soul, it is enfeebled and harmed. And whenever the soul, abandoning what belongs to her, follows after the body, she is immediately harmed. As the divine apostle said, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are contrary the one to the other. Let no one, therefore, blaspheme God, saying that he has imposed the passions and sin upon our nature, for he has implanted in natures that which causes each to grow. But whenever one nature enters into agreement with another, it is no longer found in what is proper to it, but in that which is opposed to it. For if the passions were in the soul naturally, for what reason is she harmed by them? For that which is proper to a nature does not destroy it. Question. Why does the fulfilling of the bodily passions strengthen and make the body grow, while those of the soul harm the soul, if they are proper to her? And for what reason does virtue torment the body, but enrich the soul? Answer. Do you not see how things that are external to a nature harm it? For every nature is filled with gladness when it draws near to what is proper to it. And do you wish to know what is proper to each nature? Observe, that which aids nature is proper to it, but that which is harmful is alien and invades it from without. Therefore, since it is known that the passions of the soul and body oppose one another, it is evident that although the soul should employ something that helps and relieves the body, this thing should not be thought to belong to the soul's nature. For what is proper to the soul's nature is death to the body. But by a figure of speech, it is nevertheless attributed to the soul, and because of the body's frailty, she cannot be liberated from these things so long as she is clad with the flesh. For through God's inscrutable wisdom, by nature the soul has been made a sharer in the body's griefs, by reason of the union of her movement with the body's movement. But although they are thus partakers of one another, still the movement of one is separate from the movement of the other, the will of one from the will of the other, the body from the spirit. Nature remains totally unconfused, and it does not suppress its properties. Every nature, though a man forcibly brings it into agreement with either sin or virtue, will exert its own will and breed its own offspring. When the soul is raised from bodily cares, then by the action of the spirit, she, in her entirety, st stimulates her movements to blossom forth. And in the bosom of heaven, 
she swims amidst incomprehensible things. But even when this occurs, the body is permitted to retain a consciousness of what is proper to it. Likewise, if the body is found in sin, the soul's own deliberations do not cease to spring up in the understanding. Question. What is the purity of the mind? Answer. The man who is pure in mind is not he who has no knowledge of evil, for that is to be like a brute beast, nor he who is by nature on the level of infants, nor again he who never takes up human affairs, nor yet is purity of mind that we should not beseech men for any created thing. But purity of the mind is this, to be wrapped in things divine, and this comes about after a man has practiced the virtues. We are not so bold as to say that anyone has achieved this without experience of evil thoughts, for in such a case he would not be clad with a body. For until death we cannot dare to say that our nature is not warred upon or harmed. And by experience of evil thoughts I do not mean to submit to them, but to make a beginning to struggle with them. The movement of thoughts in a man originates from four causes. Firstly, from the natural will of the flesh. Secondly, from the imagination of the world's sensory objects which a man hears and sees. Thirdly, from mental predispositions and from the aberration of the soul. And fourthly, from the assaults of the demons who wage war with us in all the passions through the causes which we have already mentioned. For this reason, till death, a man cannot be without thoughts and warfare so long as he is in the life of the flesh. If before the destruction of this world or before a man's death, one of these four causes could possibly be done away with, or whether it be possible for the body not to seek its needs and not to be compelled to desire any of the world's goods, judge for yourself. But if it is absurd to suppose any such thing, since our nature is in need of the world's goods, then it follows that the passions move in the man who is clad with a body, whether he wills it or not. Wherefore, every man must guard himself. By the word passion, I do not speak of one sort only, which openly and continually moves within a man, or of two, but of many kinds, since he is clad with a body. Although those who have vanquished the passions by means of the virtues are vexed by thoughts and the assaults of these four causes, yet they are not overcome, because they have power, and their mind is caught away into good and divine recollections. Question. In what respect does purity of mind differ from purity of heart? Answer. Purity of mind is one thing, the purity of heart is another, just as a limb differs from the whole body. Now the mind is one of the senses of the soul, but the heart is what contains and holds the inner senses. It is the sense of senses that is their root. But if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. It is evident, therefore, that if the heart is purified, all the senses are made pure. Now if the mind, on the one hand, is a little diligent in reading the divine scriptures and toils a little in fasting, vigil, and stillness, it will forget its former activity and will become pure as long as it abstains from alien concerns. Even so, its purity will not be permanent, for just as it is quickly cleansed, so too 
it is quickly soiled. But the heart, on the other hand, is only made pure by many afflictions, deprivations, separation from all fellowship with the world, and deadness to all things. Once it is purified, however, its purity is not soiled by little things, nor is it dismayed by great and open conflicts, I mean dreadful ones, inasmuch as it has acquired, as it were, a strong stomach capable of quickly digesting all the food that is indigestible to those who are weak. For so it is said among the physicians that all meat is difficult to digest, but it produces great strength in healthy bodies when a strong stomach takes it in. Even so, any purity that comes quickly with little time and slight labor is also quickly lost and defiled. But the purity that comes through many afflictions and is acquired over a long period of time in the soul's superior part is not endangered by any moderate assault. On the senses and on temptations also. When the senses are chased and collected, they give birth to peace in the soul and do not allow her to experience strife. And whenever the soul has no perception of external things, victory will be gained without struggle. But if the soul should grow negligent in this matter, she will not be able to remain secure. And after a perception has entered, she must fight hard to expel it from herself. However, her first state of limpid purity and natural innocence are lost. The majority of men, if not all the world, for this reason depart from the natural state and that limpid purity which is prior to the knowledge of diverse things. On this account, the more men are involved with the world, the more it is difficult for them to regain limpid purity by reason of their knowledge of many evil things. Only one man among many can once again return to his primordial state by another means. But simplicity is far better than the diverse ways of obtaining forgiveness. Fear is necessary for human nature in order that it might keep within the bounds of obedience to God. But the love of God incites a man to desire the works of virtue, and through love he is caught away for the doing of good. Spiritual knowledge naturally comes after the performance of the virtues, but both are preceded by fear and love, and again, fear precedes love. Whoever says with presumption that it is possible to acquire the more perfect virtues before he accomplishes the elementary has without a doubt laid the first foundation for the ruin of his soul. For the Lord's way is that the more perfect be born of the former virtues. Do not exchange your brother's love for the love of any fleeting thing, because love conceals within itself him who is more precious than all things. Abandon what is small, that you may find what is great. Spurn what is superfluous and without value, that you may discover what is truly valuable. Become as one dead during your life, and you will not live unto death. Give yourself over to death in your struggles, rather than live in heedlessness. For martyrs are not only those who have accepted death for their belief in Christ, but also those who die for the sake of keeping his commandments. Do not become foolish in your petitions, lest you insult God by your ignorance. Become wise in your prayers, that you may be accounted worthy of glorious things. 
Seek what is honorable from him who gives ungrudgingly, that you may also receive honor from him by reason of your wise volition. Solomon asked for wisdom, and with it he received an earthly kingdom, inasmuch as he asked wisely of the great king himself. Elysius asked for a double portion of the grace of the Spirit that abode in his teacher, and by no means failed of his request. For he that requests contemptible things of a king brings contempt upon the latter's honor. Israel asked for what was contemptible and received the wrath of God. It ceased to marvel at the works of God, his terrible wonders, and made supplications for its belly's lusts. But while their food was yet in their mouth, the wrath of God rose up against them. Present your petitions to God so as to accord with his glory, that your honor may be magnified before him. And he rejoice over you. For if a man should beseech the king for a measure of dung, he not only dishonors himself by his miserable petition, since he has shown great lack of sense, but also he has heaped insult upon the king because of what he asked for. Even so, he that seeks earthly things from God in his prayers does the same. For lo, angels and archangels, who are the king's great officials, are gazing steadfastly upon you at the time of your prayer to see what petition you will make of their master. And they are astonished and exultant whenever they behold one who is made of earth, forsake his dunghill and ask for what is heavenly. Do not ask of God a thing that he himself, without our asking, has already taken forethought to give not only to us, those of his own household and his beloved friends, but also to those who are strangers to the knowledge of him. Be not like unto the heathen, he says, who use vain repetitions in their prayers. For after all these bodily things do the heathen seek, says the Lord. But ye take no thought what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, or what ye shall put on. For your father knoweth what ye have need of these things. A son does not ask bread of his father, but seeks the great and lofty things of his father's house. It was on account of the feebleness of the minds of men that the Lord commanded us to ask for our daily bread. For see what he commanded those who are perfect in knowledge and healthy of soul. Take no thought concerning food or raiment, he says. For if he taketh care for the brute beasts and the birds and even lifeless things, will he not take much more care for you. But seek ye rather the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If you should beseech God for a thing, and he forbears to hearken to you speedily, do not grieve, for you are not wiser than God. This happens to you either because you are not worthy to obtain your request, or because the pathways of your heart do not accord with your petitions, but rather the contrary or because you have not yet reached the measure wherein you could receive the gift you ask for. We must not rush onwards to great measures before the time, lest God's gift be debased by our hasty reception of it. For anything that is quickly obtained is also easily lost, whereas everything found with toil is also kept with careful watching. Thirst for Jesus, that he may make you drink from his love. Close your eyes to the delights of this life that God may deem you worthy to have his peace reigning in your heart. 
Abstain from what your eyes behold, that you may be accounted worthy of spiritual joy. If your works are displeasing to God, seek not from him glorious things, lest you become a man who tempts God. As your manner of life, so must your prayer be. For it is impossible for someone bound up in earthly matters to seek what is heavenly, and the man who is occupied with worldly affairs cannot ask for what is divine. Each man's desire is revealed by his works, and in whatever matters he shows his zeal is for these that he strives in prayer. The man who desires the greatest things does not concern himself with the lesser. Be free, though you are bound in a body, and for Christ's sake show forth obedience in your freedom. But also be prudent in your simplicity, lest you be plundered. Love humility in all your activities, that you be delivered from the imperceptible snares that are always found outside the pathways of humble men. Do not reject afflictions, for through them you will enter into the knowledge of the truth. And do not fear temptations, because therein you find precious things. Pray that you enter not into the temptations of the soul, but with all your strength prepare yourself for those of the body. Without these, you cannot draw nigh to God, because divine rest is laid up within them. He that flees temptations flees from virtue. But by temptation I mean not that which originates from lusts, but from afflictions. Question. How does pray that ye enter not into temptation agree with strive to enter in at the narrow gate, and again with fear not them that kill the body, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Why is it that the Lord everywhere urges us on to temptations, yet here he enjoys us to pray not to enter into them? Indeed, what virtue is without affliction and trial, or what kind of trial is greater than for a man to lose his very self, a trial into which he has bidden us all to enter on his account? For he says, He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. How is it, therefore, that in all his teaching he has enjoined us to enter into temptations? Yet here he has commanded us to pray not to enter into them. You must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God, says Paul. And again, in the world ye shall have tribulation, and in your patience regarding these things ye shall gain your souls." O oh, the subtlety of the path of thy teachings, O Lord! Outside this path is the man who reads without understanding and knowledge. When the sons of Zebedee and their mother aspired to sit at thy side in thy kingdom, thou didst say unto them, Are ye able to drink the cup of temptations that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And how is it that here, O Master, thou dost permit us to pray not to enter into temptations. Concerning what sort of temptations dost thou command us to pray that we enter not into them? Answer. Pray, he says, that you enter not into temptations of your faith. Pray that through your mind's self-esteem you enter not into temptation with the demon of blasphemy and pride. Pray that you enter not by God's permission into the manifest temptation of the devil because of the evil thoughts which you have entertained in your mind and on account of which you suffer temptation. Pray that the angel of your chastity 
may not withdraw from you, that you may not ward upon by the fiery war of sin and be separated from him. Pray that you enter not into temptation of vexation with someone. Pray that you enter not into temptations of soul through doubts and provocations by which the soul is violently drawn into great conflict. Howbeit prepare yourself with all your soul to receive bodily temptations. Voyage in them with all your members, and fill your eyes with tears, so that the angel who guards you does not depart from you. For without trials God's providence is not seen, and you cannot obtain boldness before God, nor learn the wisdom of the Spirit, nor can divine longing be established in you. Before temptations a man prays to God as though he were a stranger, but when he enters into temptations for the sake of his love and does not permit himself to be deflected, then straightway he has, as it were, God as his debtor, and God reckons him as a true friend, since he has warred against his enemy and defeated him for the sake of his will. This is to pray that you enter not into temptation. And again, pray that you enter not into the fearsome temptation of the devil by reason of your arrogance, but because you love God and you wish that his power might help you and through you vanquish his enemies. Pray that you enter not into such trials because of the wickedness of your thoughts and works, but rather in order that your love of God may be tested and that his strength be glorified in your presence. On our Master's tender compassion, whereby from the height of his majesty he has condescended to men's weakness and on temptations. But on the other hand, if you pay attention with understanding, our Lord did enjoin us to pray concerning bodily trials also, making provision for us after the manner of his loving kindness and according to the measure of his grace. For knowing our nature to be frail because of the earthly and unsound substance of our body, and that it cannot withstand temptations when engulfed by them, and that for this reason we fall away from the truth and we turn our backs, becoming overcome by afflictions. He therefore commands us to pray that we should not suddenly fall into temptations, if it be possible to please God without them. If, however, we should fall suddenly into terrible trials by reason of our quest for great virtue, and if virtue cannot be accomplished at that time if we do not endure them, then in such a case we should spare neither ourselves nor other men. Nor out of fear must we relinquish the noble and honorable deed in which the life of the soul is treasured up and employ as a veil for our laxity the words, Pray that you enter not into temptation. It is said concerning such persons that through the commandment they sin in secret. If, therefore, it befalls a man that temptation comes upon him and compels him to break one of Christ's commandments, that is, to abandon his chastity, or the monastic life, or to deny the faith, or not to struggle for Christ's sake, or to set at naught any one of the commandments, and he becomes afraid and does not courageously resist these temptations, then he will fall away from the truth. So let us shun the body with all our strength, surrender our souls to God, and in the Lord's name enter into the arena of temptations. May he that preserved Joseph in the land of Egypt and showed him forth as an icon, an exemplar of chastity, 
who kept Daniel unharmed in the lion's den and the three children in the fiery furnace, who delivered Jeremiah from the pit of mire and bestowed mercy upon him in the midst of the camp of the Chaldeans, who brought Peter out of prison while the doors were shut and saved Paul from the synagogue of the Jews. And to speak simply, he that always continues with his servants in every place and country, who manifests his power and victory in them, who preserves them with manifold wonders and reveals his salvation to them in all their afflictions. May he give us strength also and rescue us from amid the waves that encompass us. Amen. Let us therefore acquire zeal in our souls against the devil and his ministers, even such as the Maccabees had, and the holy prophets, apostles, martyrs, the righteous, and the just. For these men proved allies of the divine laws and the commandments of the Spirit in fearful places and amid most grievous tribulations. Mightily did they put the world and the flesh behind their backs and persevere in their righteousness. And they were not overcome by the perils that encircled both their soul and body, but courageously took the victory. And their names are written in the book of life until the coming of Christ. By God's decree, their teaching has been preserved for our instruction and strengthening, as the blessed apostle testifies, that we might become wise and learn the ways of God, and keep their histories and lives in view as living and breathing icons, and take our example from them, and run their course, and make ourselves like unto them. The words of God are as sweet to the soul, possessed of great understanding, as food that delights the body. And the histories of the righteous are as desirable to the ears of the meek, as continual watering to a newly planted tree. Therefore, beloved, have in your mind God's providence, which from the beginning until now is dispensed with foreknowledge, as some excellent medicine for weakened eyes, and keep its recollection with you at all times. Ponder, consider, and be taught by these things, that you may learn to hold the remembrance of the greatness of God's honor in your soul, and thus find life eternal for your soul in Jesus Christ our Lord, who has become the mediator between God and men, as being the uniter in his two natures. The orders of the angels cannot approach the glory that surrounds the throne of his majesty, yet he has appeared in the world for our sake in a mean and humble form. As Isaiah says, we beheld him that he had no form nor beauty. It is he that being invisible to all created nature put on a body and fulfilled the economy for the salvation and life of all the nations which were cleansed by him. To whom be glory and dominion unto the ages of ages. Amen. Homily 4. On the love of God and renunciation, and the rest which is in God. The soul that loves God finds rest only in God. First, loose yourself from all external bonds, and then you will be able to bind your heart to God, because the being bound to God is preceded by the being loosed from matter. After an infant is weaned, it is given bread to eat, and the man who wishes to progress in things divine must first be weaned from the world, like an infant from its mother's breasts. Works performed with the body precede those performed with the soul, just as in generation the creation of the body preceded the creation of the soul. 
The man who has not performed bodily works cannot possess the works of the soul, since the second are born of the first like the ear of corn from a naked grain of wheat. And he who does not possess the works of the soul is bereft of spiritual gifts. The sufferings of the present age undertaken for the truth cannot be compared with the delight that is prepared for those who labor in good works. And just as the sheaves of gladness follow for those who are sown with tears, so joy follows for those who suffer hardship for the sake of God. Bread procured with much sweat seems sweet to the husbandman, and sweet are works for righteousness' sake to the heart which has received the knowledge of Christ. Suffer contempt and humiliation with good will, that you may have boldness before God. The man who with knowledge endures all manner of harsh words without having previously wronged his chider, at that moment places a crown of thorns on his head, and he is blessed, for he is crowned with an imperishable crown in a time that he knows not. The man who flees futile glory with knowledge has already sensed in his soul the hope of the age to come. The monk who says he has left the world and strives with men because of some necessity, lest he should be deprived of his ease, is utterly blind, since although he has voluntarily abandoned the whole body, yet he contends for one of its members. The mind of the man who flees the ease of this age has scrutinized the age to come. He who is bound by possessions is a slave of the passions. Do not imagine that merely the possession of gold and silver is possessiveness. Rather, it is the acquisition of anything whatsoever which your will clings to. Do not extol the man who endures bodily hardship and yet gives free rein to his senses. I mean that of hearing, and whose mouth is gaping and intemperate, and eyes roaming. If you make it a rule for your soul to practice deeds of mercy, accustom your soul not to seek your justification in other works, lest you find yourself scattering with one hand what you have gathered with the other. For solicitude is necessary in the first instance, whereas breadth of heart in the second. Be it known to you that to remit our debtors their sins is one of the works of righteousness. Then you will see tranquility and luster throughout your entire mind. When you rise above the path of justice, you will cleave to freedom in all your actions. One of the saints spoke of this, saying, The merciful man, if he be not just, is blind. That is to say, he must give to another man what he has gained by his own labors and hardship, and not what he is through fraud, injustice, trickery. And the same saint said in another place, If you wish to sow your seed among the destitute, sow from your own seed. For if you wish to see, to sow from other men's seed, know that what you sow is the most bitter of tares. But I say that if the merciful man does not rise above what is just, he is not merciful. That is to say, he is merciful, who not only shows mercy to others by giving from his own means, but who also suffers injustice from other men with joy, voluntarily, and not merely keeps and requires justice in his dealings with his fellow men, but also shows them mercy. When a man overcomes justice by mercy, he is crowned, though not with crowns awarded under the law to the righteous, but with the crowns of the perfect who are under the gospel. For the ancient law also dictates that a man must give to the poor from his own means, and clothe the naked, and love his neighbor as himself, and forbids injustice and lying. But the perfection of the gospel's dispensation commands the following. 
Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And further, a man must not merely with joy suffer injustice as regards his possessions, and the rest of the external things which come upon him, but he must also lay down his life for his brother. This is the merciful man, and not he that simply shows mercy to his brother by giving him something. And whoever burns within his heart when he sees or hears of something that grieves his brother, such a one is truly merciful, as is also the man who, being slapped by his brother, does not act shamelessly and answer abusively, thus grieving his brother's heart. Honor the work of vigil, that consolation may come near your soul. Persevere in reading while dwelling in stillness that your mind may be drawn toward the wonders of God at all times. Love poverty and patience that your mind may be collected and secured from wandering. Detest superfluity that you may persevere, preserve your thoughts untroubled. Withdraw yourself from multitudinous affairs and have your soul as your only concern so that you may save her innermost tranquility from dispersion. Love chastity, that you may not be disgraced in the time of your prayer to Christ, the judge of the contest. Acquire purity in your actions, that your soul may glisten with joy during prayer, and that at the remembrance of death rejoicing may be kindled in your mind. Be on your guard against small things, lest you fall in great matters. Be not slothful in your work, lest you be disgraced when you Stand in the midst of your companions, and do not be found without provisions for your journey, lest you be left alone by the wayside. Conduct your works with knowledge, lest you abandon your entire course. Acquire freedom in your manner of life, that you may be freed of turmoil. Do not bind your freedom by what affords you, you pleasure, lest you become a slave of slaves. Love, mean apparel as your dress so that you may set at naught the thoughts which spring up in you, I mean haughtiness of heart and licentiousness. For the man who loves splendid apparel cannot acquire humble thoughts, since necessarily the heart within conforms to the attire without. Who is the man that can acquire a pure mind while loving idle chatter? And who can acquire lowly thoughts while seeking to capture glory from men? Or who can become pure of thought and humble of heart when he is licentious and dissolute in his members. For whenever the mind is drawn away by the senses, it also eats the food of beasts with them. But when the senses are drawn by the mind, they partake together with it of the sustenance of angels. Vainglory is a service of fornication, but when it is found in monastic discipline, it is the servant of pride. Self-constraint follows humility, but spacious living is united to love of glory. Humility attains to divine wisdom because of her continual self-constriction, and she adorns the soul with chastity. But vainglory, through its continual turmoil and confusion caused by thoughts, which arise from encounters with things, gathers abominable treasures for itself and defiles the heart. And again, vainglory beholds the nature of things with a licentious vision, and occupies the mind with deplorable imaginings. But humility spiritually constricts herself by means of divine vision and moves the man who possesses her to glorify God. Do not compare those who work signs and wonders and mighty acts in the world with those who practice stillness with knowledge. Love the idleness of stillness above providing for the world's starving 
and the conversion of a multitude of heathen to worship of God. It is better for you to free yourself from the shackle of sin than to free slaves from their slavery. It is better for you to make peace with your soul, causing concord to reign over the Trinity within you, I mean the body, the soul, and the spirit, than by your teaching to bring peace among men at variance. For as Gregory the theologian says, it is a good thing to speak concerning the things of God for God's sake, but it is better for a man to make himself pure for God. Love uncouthness of speech joined with knowledge from inner experience more than to gush forth rivers of instruction from the keenness of your intellect and from a deposit of hearsay and writings of ink. It is more profitable for you to attend to the raising up unto the activity of your cognitions concerning God, the deadness of your soul due to the passions than it is to resurrect the dead. Many have accomplished mighty acts, raised the dead, toiled for the conversion of the erring, and have wrought great wonders, and by their hands they have led many to the knowledge of God. Yet after these things, these same men who quickened others fell into vile and abominable passions and slew themselves, becoming a stumbling block for many when their acts were made manifest. For they were still sickly in soul, but instead of caring for their soul's health, they committed themselves to the sea of this world in order to heal the souls of others, being yet in ill health. And in the manner I have stated, they lost their souls and fell away from their hope in God. The infirmity of their senses was not able to confront or resist the flame of things that customarily make wild the vehemence of the passions. For their senses still required guarding. I mean that these men should not have seen women at all, or have taken their ease, or gained wealth and possessions, or had authority over others, or been exalted above other men. It is better for you if men think you unlearned and uncouth because of your inexperience and disputation rather than one of the wise because of your shamelessness. Become poor for humility's sake and do not amass riches on account of your shamelessness. Confute those who would strive to dispute with you by the strength of your virtues and not by the persuasiveness of your words. By the meekness and quietness of your lips, put the impudence of the obstinate to silence and not by speaking. Reprove the wanton by the nobility of your life and those who are shameless as regard the senses by the modest curbing of your eyes. Consider yourself a stranger all the days of your life, wherever you may be, so that you may find deliverance from the injury which is born of familiarity. In every matter, consider yourself to be totally ignorant so as to escape the reproach which follows the suspicion that you would wish to set aright other men's opinions. Let your lips always utter blessings, and you will never be reviled. For revilement begets revilement, and blessing begets blessing. In all things, think that you are in need of teaching, and you will prove wise throughout your life. Do not pass on to another what you yourself have not attained, lest you put yourself to shame, and you, your lie be exposed by a comparison with your life. If you begin to say something profitable, say it as though you yourself are still learning and not with authority and shamelessness. Judge yourself beforehand and prove to your listeners that you are inferior to them in order to show them the way of humility and to incite them to hearken to your words 
and readily to take action. Then you shall be venerable in their eyes, and if possible, speak of these matters with tears, so that both you and they may be profited, and the grace of God may be with you. If you gain the grace of God and are deemed worthy to revel in the divine vision of God's judgments and of visible creation, which is the first summit of knowledge, prepare yourself, yea, arm yourself against the spirit of blasphemy. Do not take a stand in this battlefield without weapons, lest speedily you be slain by those who lie in wait for you and deceive you. And let your weapons be tears and continuous fasting with prostrations. Beware of reading the doctrines of heretics, for they more than anything else can arm the spirit of blasphemy against you. And when you fill your stomach, do not shamelessly search out matters and concepts concerning God, lest you later repent of it. Understand what I say. There can be no knowledge of the mysteries of God on a full stomach. Read often and insatiably the books of the teachers of the church on divine providence, for they lead the mind to discern the order in God's creatures and his actions, give it strength, and by their subtleness they prepare it to acquire luminous perceptions and guide it in purity toward the understanding of God's creatures. Read also the Gospels, which God ordained for knowledge for the whole world, that you may find provisions for your journey in the might of God's providence for every generation, and that your mind may plunge deeply into wonder at him. Such reading furthers your aim, that your reading be done in a stillness that nothing disturbs. Be free of all concern for the body and the turmoil of affairs, so that through the sweet understanding which surpasses all the senses, you may savor that most sweet taste in your soul, which she perceives in herself, because of her constant intercourse with these things. Let not the words of experienced men be to you as those of shallow persons and the vendors of words, lest you dwell in darkness till your life's end and be deprived of any profit from them, lest, like a man confused, you become troubled in the time of warfare and fall into a pit because of a thing that is seemingly good. This shall be a sign for you, and whatever matter you wish to penetrate if you have truly entered into that realm, when grace begins to open your eyes so that you may perceive the divine vision of things such as they are, then your eyes will immediately start to shed torrents of tears, so much so that they will wash your cheeks by their abundance. Thereupon peace comes to the war of the senses, and it is curtailed within you. But if someone should teach you otherwise, do not believe him. Besides tears, you should not ask for any other manifest sign from the body as an indication that you have perceived the truth, except the silence of the activity of the members. That is to say, when the mind is exalted above created things, the body also takes leave of tears and of every movement and sensation apart from its natural vitality. For this knowledge does not stoop to take within itself as a companion, figuratively through mental vision, the forms of things of the visible world. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, and he heard unspeakable words. All that is heard by the ears can be spoken. He did not hear audible sounds, nor did he see a vision composed of the corporal images of sense perception, but it was by the motions of the understanding, being in rapture, while his will had no fellowship with his body. I hath never seen such things, nor ear 
heard the like, and his heart never imagined that the likeness which his diversified knowledge saw would rise up in it through recollection. I mean, those things which God has prepared to show the pure of heart by reason of their deadness to the world. This is not corporal vision received by means of the eyes of the flesh through gross distinctions, nor fantasies which they themselves form in their minds in an unreal manner. But this is the simplicity of theoria concerning noetic things and the things of the faith, which is contrary to partition and divisions that exhibit images composed of elements. Gaze upon the sphere of the sun according to your visual power and only to delight in its rays, but not to investigate the course of its orb, lest you be deprived of your limited visual faculty as well. When you find honey, partake of it with measure, lest becoming satiated you vomit it up. The nature of the soul is light and imponderable. Hence, she sometimes leaps, desiring to ascend to great heights and learn things that surpass her nature. For often she grasps something from the reading of the scriptures and the divine vision of created things. But when it is permitted and she compares herself with those things she has grasped, she finds herself much inferior and meaner as regard the measure of her constitution. For her knowledge has entered into such things that she is clothed with fear and trembling in her thoughts, and she hastens under the constraint of timidity to return to her lowly life upon the earth, being ashamed, as it were, that she dared to approach spiritual matters which surpass her. Because of the fear with which these things inspire, a certain timidity is born in her, and discretion beckons to the soul's mind to practice silence and refrain from shamelessness, lest she perish, and it binds her not to seek things which far surpass her or search out what is more lofty than she. When you are given the power to understand, understand. Do not act shamelessly with regard to mysteries, but worship. Silently give glory and confess what surpasses comprehension. Just as it is not good to eat much honey, so it is also not a good thing to probe into glorious utterances, lest desiring to behold things far distant when we have not yet attained to them, owing to the ruggedness of the way, our faculty of vision should grow feeble and be injured. For sometimes indeed phantasms are seen instead of the truth. And when the understanding grows weary from its searching, it loses its focus. Thus the wise Solomon has said well that a man without patience is like a city without walls. There is no need for us to roam about heaven and earth in quest of God or to send forth our minds into diverse places in search of him. Therefore purify your soul, O man, and drive away from you all cares which concern things outside your nature and shroud your soul's perceptions and movements with the veil of chastity and humility. By this means you will discover him that is within you, since mysteries are revealed to the humble. If you intend to dedicate your soul to the work of prayer, which purifies the understanding, and to night vigil in order to acquire an illumined noose, betake yourself far from the sight of the world, sever all intercourse, and even on seemingly good pretexts, do not allow friends to visit you in your cell, as is the custom, but only those who think and live as you do and are your fellow initiates. If you fear the confusion of hidden unspiritual converse, which is wont to spring up in the soul involuntarily, cut off and loose yourself from outward converse. Yoke mercy to your prayer, and your soul will see the light of truth. 
For insofar as the heart ceases to be disturbed by recollections of external things, to such an extent can the noose receive the astonishment that arises from understanding the meanings of the verses of Scripture. For it is an easy matter for the soul to exchange one converse for another if we strive to show even a little diligence and patience. To exchange one converse for another, occupy yourself with reading books that will make plain to you the subtle pathways of the ascetic discipline, of divine vision, and of the lives of the saints, although you may not sense the sweetness of this at once owing to darkness caused by recollections of things close at hand. And when you stand up to pray and to say your rule of prayer, instead of thinking of what you have seen and heard in the world, you will find in your mind the divine scriptures you have read. And this meditation will make you forget worldly things. In this manner, your noose will come to purity, and herein lies the meaning of the following. Reading assists the soul when she stands in prayer, and also from reading the soul is enlightened in prayer, instead of confusion from without. Reading provides the soul with material for the different kinds of prayer. This material is the truthful insights that suddenly enter the mind by reason of wondrous recollections of what was read. For how many times has the power of Theoria aroused by reading the scriptures, astonished and stupefied the noose even during prayer and left it standing motionless. This power is also wont to cut off prayer itself by its sweetness, as I have said, to embrace the heart with stillness and to silence the thoughts of the heart by arresting the members of both body and soul. What I say is known by those who have experienced this very thing in their souls who have entered into its mysteries and have not learned of it from others or stolen it from writings which so often can falsify the truth. Thus, as was said by reading, the soul is enlightened anew and helped always to pray assiduously and without confusion. It is just as shameful for lovers of the flesh and the belly to search out spiritual things as it is for a harlot to discourse on chastity. A body suffering grave illness shuns fatty foods and abhors them, and likewise a mind occupied with worldly affairs cannot approach the inquiry into the things of God. A fire cannot be ignited in wet wood, nor can the divine fervor be kindled in a heart that loves ease. The harlot does not limit her, her affections to one man, nor does the soul that is pinioned by many concerns remain faithful to divine teachings. As a man who cannot see the sun because of the feebleness of his eyes is unable to describe to another its light, its, its rays and brilliance, since he himself has not beheld it but knows only from hearsay, so it is with the man whose soul has not tasted the sweetness of spiritual works and whose way of life has never brought him to the experience of these mysteries, so as to be able to grasp with his mind a likeness that embraces the truth. This man can never find real conviction in his soul or attain to the exact truth of things through human instruction and exercise in copying books. If you have something above your daily needs, give it to the poor, and then go with boldness to offer your prayers, that is, to converse with God as a son with his father. Nothing can bring the heart so near to God as almsgiving, and nothing brings such serenity to the mind as voluntary poverty. It is better for you to be called an Ignamorous by the many because of the generosity of your hands and your measureless liberality because of your fear of God than to be called wise and sound of mind by reason of your niggardliness. 
If someone on horseback should stretch out his hand and ask alms of you, do not refuse him, for at that moment he is certainly in need, just as one of the destitute. When you give, give generously with a joyous countenance, and give more than you are asked for, since it is said, send forth thy morsel of bread toward the face of the poor man, and soon you will find your recompense. Do not separate the rich from the poor, nor try to discriminate the worthy from the unworthy, but let all men be equal in your eyes for a good deed. In this way you can draw even the unworthy toward the good, since the soul is easily led to the fear of God by means of bodily things. The Lord ate at table with publicans and harlots and did not alienate the unworthy, that he might in this way bring all to the fear of God, and that through bodily things they would approach the spiritual. For this reason, and especially because they are your brethren of your very nature and have erred from the truth unwittingly, deem every man equally worthy of benefaction and honor, be he a Jew, an unbeliever, or a murderer. When you do good to someone, do not await a recompense from him, and you will receive repayment from God on both accounts. And if you are able, neither do good so as to receive reward in the future age, but rather practice virtue because of the love of God. The rank of love is more initiated than the rank of labor for God, for it is more initiated into its mystery than the soul surpasses the body in initiation. If you make poverty a rule for your soul, and by God's grace you are freed from cares, and by your poverty you are exalted above this world, then beware lest you become enamored of possessions under the pretext of almsgiving due to your love for the poor. And thus, by taking from one man in order to give to another, you put your soul in turmoil once again, and efface your honor by subjection to men while begging from them, and lose the freedom and nobility of your mind through your concern for matters of this life. For your station is higher than that of the almsgiver. Do not, I beseech you, do not accept such subjection. Almsgiving is like the rearing of children, but stillness is the summit of perfection. If you have possessions, distribute them at once. But if you have none, do not desire any. Sweep your cell clean of every delicacy and superfluous article, and this will lead you to abstinence even against your will. Scarcity in all things teaches a man patience, but whenever we enjoy possessions, we are unable to control ourselves. Those who have gained the victory in the exterior war have acquired confidence against interior fear, and there is nothing that can vexedly compel them. They are not harassed by warfare, either from in front or from behind. By exterior warfare, I mean that which men heedlessly brings upon himself through the senses, that is, through giving out and receiving, through hearing and seeing, and through speech, taking food and a gradual, persistent increase of one's affairs. When such things overlie the soul, they blind her, and because of turmoil from without, she is unable to give heed to herself during the onslaught of hidden warfare, and because of her serenity to conquer them that suddenly attack her from without. For when a man has barred the city gates, that is, the senses, he fights within face to face and does not fear those devising evil outside the city. Blessed is the man who, knowing this and abiding in stillness, does not trouble himself with a multitude of works, but has translated all his physical activity in the works of prayer. And as he proceeds from divine service to divine service, does not join anything else to the works of God that consists in prayer and reading.
being confident that inasmuch as he toils in company with God and has him as his only concern both night and day, he will never be in want of any necessity. For it is on his account that he shuns distraction and works. But if a man cannot persevere in stillness without some manual pursuit, let him work, using this as an auxiliary, but not for gain's sake, satisfying greed. Such occupation is allocated for the weak, but it is a source of tribulation for the more perfect. The fathers have declared that the needy and the slothful should work, but they did not make handwork compulsory. At whatever time God should grant compunction to your heart from within, give yourself over to unremitting bows and prostrations. And when the demons try to persuade you to do something else, do not allow your heart to be concerned about any matter. And then behold and wonder at what is born from within you from this. There's nothing greater and more laborious in ascetical struggles, and nothing more excites envy in the demons than if a man prostrates himself before the cross of Christ, praying night and day, and is like a convict whose hands are bound behind him. Do you wish that your fervor should never be cooled, and your tears never impoverished? Govern yourself in this way, and you will be blessed, O man, making what has been told you your only care both night and day, and seeking nothing else. Then light will dawn within you, and your righteousness will quickly shine forth, and you will be like a paradise of burgeoning flowers and an unfailing fountain of waters. See what good things are born in a man from struggle. It often happens that when a man bends his knees in prayer and stretches forth his hands to the heavens, fixing his eyes upon the cross of Christ and concentrating all his thoughts on God during his prayer, beseeching God all the while with tears and compunction, suddenly and without warning a fountain springs up in his heart gushing forth sweetness. His members grow feeble, his eyesight is veiled, he bows his head to the earth and his thoughts are altered so that because of the joy that surges throughout his entire body he cannot make prostrations. Therefore, O man, pay attention to what you read here. Indeed, can these things be known from writings of ink or can the taste of honey pass over the palate by reading books? For if you do not strive, you will not find. And if you do not knock at the door with vehemence and keep constant vigil before it, you will not be heard. Who is the man that hearing this will desire outward righteousness, save only he that is unable to persevere in stillness? Yet if there be someone who cannot practice stillness, since it is the grace of God that brings a man within the door... Let him not forsake the other way, lest by doing so he have no shame in either of the paths of life. Until the outer man dies to all the doings of the world, not only to sin, but also to every bodily activity, and likewise until the inner man dies to evil thoughts, and the natural stirrings of the body weaken, and the body dies a little by means of labors, so that the sweetness of sin no longer arises in the heart. Until such a time, the sweetness of the Spirit of God will most certainly not arise in a man. His members will not open themselves up to life, and divine thoughts will not enter into his soul, nor be perceived, nor be seen. And until a man has stilled in his heart every concern for the affairs of this life, except for the indispensable needs of his nature, and entrust this care to God, spiritual inebriation will not overwhelm him, nor will he experience that madness whereof the apostle was accused, much learning hath made him mad.
But when I say these things, I do not mean to banish hope, as though only those who have attained to the most sublime perfection can be accounted worthy of God's grace and find consolation. For in very truth, when a man disdains evil actions and separates himself from them entirely and clings to the good, he will quickly sense divine aid. And if he struggles a little, he will find comfort for his soul. He will gain the remission of his sins. He will be deemed worthy of grace and will receive a multitude of blessings. Yet such a one is found inferior when compared to the perfection of the man who has banished himself from the world and has found within his soul the mystery of that blessedness which is of the future age and has laid hold of that thing for which Christ came, to whom be glory together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever unto the ages of ages. Amen. Homily 5. On keeping oneself remote from the world and from all things that disquiet the mind. God has conferred much honor upon men with the twofold instruction which he has given them. And from every quarter he has opened a door to enable them to enter into saving knowledge. Ask from nature a true witness concerning yourself, and you will not go astray. Yet even if you turn aside from thence, learn from that second witness, and it will place you on the path from which you wandered. A distracted heart cannot avoid forgetfulness, and wisdom does not open her door before it. He who is enabled to understand with exact knowledge what degree of equality the end of all men brings, needs no other teacher for renouncing life's affairs. The first book given by God to rational beings was the nature of created things, but the instruction set down in writing was added after the transgression. Whoever does not voluntarily withdraw himself from the causes of the passions is involuntarily drawn away by sin. These are the causes of sin, wine, women, riches, and robust health of body. Not that by their nature these things are sins, but that nature readily inclines toward the sinful passions on their account, and for this reason a man must guard himself against them with great care. If you bear your weakness constantly in mind, you will not overstep the bounds of caution. With men, poverty is something loathsome, but with God much more so as a soul whose heart is proud and whose mind is scornful. With men, wealth is honored, but with God, the soul that has come to humility. Whenever you wish to make a beginning in some good work, first prepare yourself for the temptations that will come upon you, and do not doubt the truth. For it is the enemy's custom, whenever he sees a man beginning a good mode of life with fervent faith, to confront him with diverse and fearful temptations, so that he should be afraid, his good intention should be chilled, and he should lack the fervor to undertake that God-pleasing work. It is not that our adversary has such power, for then no one could ever do good, but God concedes it to him, as we have learned with the righteous Job. Therefore prepare yourself manfully to encounter the temptations that are brought against the virtues, and then begin to practice them. For if you have not prepared yourself beforehand to meet temptations, then refrain from practicing the virtues. The man who doubts that God is his helper in good work is put to flight by his own shadow. He starves at a time of prosperity and plentitude, and in a period of calm his shipwreck will be severe. But a man whose confidence is in God is stout of heart 
His worth is made manifest to all men, and his praise is before the face of his enemies. God's commandments excel all the treasures of the world, and he who acquires his laws in his heart finds the Lord within them. The man who always goes to bed with rumination upon God has gained him as his chamberlain, and he who desires the fulfillment of God's will will have the angels of heaven as his guides. A man who fears sins will traverse a terrible passage without stumbling, and at a time of darkness he will find light before him and within himself. The Lord carefully watches the steps of the man who fears sins, and God's mercy forestalls him when he slips. A man who considers his transgressions to be slight falls into worse sins than he formerly committed, and he will pay his penalty sevenfold. Sow your alms in humility, and you will reap mercy at the judgment. By those means whereby you have lost goods, by the same will you gain them back again. You owe God a penny, and he will not accept a pearl from you in its place. Having lost chastity, do not allow fornication to remain in its place and give alms because of it. God will not accept them, for in place of sanctification, he requires sanctification. Although you wrong not the poor, do not allow an unjust possession to remain in its place. You fast from bread, do not leave iniquity in its place and struggle with some other thing. Greed is uprooted by mercy and privation. You have left the plant in its place, and do you struggle with something else? St. Ephraim said, In summertime, do not struggle against the scorching heat in winter clothing. Let each man reap by means that oppose the iniquity he has sown. Every disease is cured with its own remedies. And you, who are overcome by envy, why do you battle against sleep? While the transgression is still small and blossoming, pluck it up before it spreads and covers the field. Do not be negligent when your fault seems slight to you, for later you will find it an inhumane master and will be running before it like a shackled slave. But a man who fights against a passion from the start will soon subdue it. He who is able to suffer wrong with joy, having though having means at hand to rebuff it, has consciously received from God the consolation of his faith. The man who endures accusations against himself with humility has arrived at perfection, and he is marveled at by the holy angels, for there is no other virtue so great and so hard to achieve. Do not believe yourself to be strong until you are tempted and find yourself superior to change. In this manner, test yourself in everything. Acquire a right faith in yourself, so that you may trample down your enemies. Keep your mind lowly and place no confidence in your strength, lest you be given over to the frailty of your nature. And then, from your own fall, you will learn your own weakness. Nor should you trust your knowledge, lest you be found amid subtle snares and you become entangled. Have a meek tongue, and dishonor will never encounter you. Acquire sweet lips, and you will have all men as your friends. Never boast of your labors with your tongue, lest you be put to shame. In each matter about which a man boasts himself, God permits that he change, so that he should be humbled and learn humility. This is why you must surrender all things to God's foreknowledge and not believe that there is anything in this life unchanging. 
acting in this manner, your eye will always be lifted up to God. For God's protection and providence encircle all men, yet they are not seen except by those who have cleansed themselves from sin and continually keep their attention on God and on Him alone. But God's providence is especially apparent to them when they enter into a great trial on behalf of the truth. For then they perceive it as if seeing it with their bodily eyes, each man in proportion to the magnitude of the temptation which befalls him, and according to the cause thereof. This is the case in order that providence might anoint its champions to have courage in this manner, as with Jacob and Jesus of Navi and the three children and Peter and the rest of the saints to whom it appeared in a human form, giving them confidence and confirming them in godliness. But if you say that these things were granted to the saints from God by way of economy, and that it was for special reasons that they were deemed worthy of such visions, then let the holy martyrs be examples to encourage you. The martyrs, often many together, but sometimes one alone, in places both many and diverse, contested for Christ's sake. And with the secret strength that came to them, they courageously endured in bodies of clay the lacerations of iron and torments of every kind, things that surpass nature. But also to such as these, the holy angels would manifestly appear so that every man might learn that divine providence is very near to those who in every manner endure both every temptation and every affliction for the Lord's sake, for their encouragement and for the shaming of their enemies. For inasmuch as the saints were roused to manliness by visions of this kind, to just such a degree did their adversaries rage and become frenzied with wrath at their unyielding patience. But what need is there to speak of the ascetics, those strangers to the world, and of the anchorites who made the desert a city and a dwelling place and hostelry for angels? For the angels continually visited these men because their modes of life were so similar. And as being troops of a single sovereign, at all times they kept company with their comrades in arms, that is to say, those who embraced the desert all the days of their life and took up their abode in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth because of their love for God. And since having abandoned things earthly, they loved the heavenly and were become imitators of the angels, rightly did those very same holy angels not conceal the sight of themselves from them, and they fulfilled their every wish. Moreover, from time to time they appeared to them to teach them how they ought to lead their lives. Sometimes they clarified certain perplexities for them, or sometimes the saints themselves asked them for what was needed, and sometimes they guided them when they had strayed along the way, or sometimes they came to their rescue when they fell into temptations. Sometimes they snatched them from unexpected mishap and peril that overtook them, such as a snake or a ledge or a splinter of wood or a blow from a stone. Or sometimes when the enemy was openly waging war on the saints, they showed themselves visibly to their eyes and said that they were sent to their aid and brought them confidence, daring, and refreshment by their words. At other times they performed healings through them, or at times they cured the saints themselves when they fell into certain ailments, sometimes when their bodies succumbed from lack of food, with a touch of the hand or with words, 
they fortified and strengthened them above nature. Or sometimes they brought them food, loaves of bread, which were oftentimes even hot, and other things for their nourishment. To some of them they foretold their departure, and to others the very manner of their departing. But why should we count up the many things that prove the holy angels' love for us and their special care for the righteous? For just as big brothers do for their little ones, so do they look after us. All these things come to pass so as to assure every man how nigh the Lord is unto all that call upon him in truth, and how much provision he manifests towards those who have devoted themselves to pleasing him and who follow him with pure hearts. If you believe that God makes provision for you, why be anxious and concerned about temporal affairs and the needs of your flesh? But if you do not believe that God makes provision for you, and for this reason you take pains to provide for your need separately from him, then you are of all men most miserable. Why even be alive or go on living in such a case? Cast thy care upon the Lord, and he will nourish thee, and you shall never be dismayed at any terror that overtakes you. A man who has dedicated himself once and for all to God goes through life with a restful mind. Without non-possessiveness, the soul cannot be freed from the turmoil of thoughts, and without stillness of the senses, she will not perceive peace of mind. Without entering into temptations, no man will ever gain the wisdom of the Spirit, and without assiduous reading, he will know no refinement of thoughts. Without tranquility of thoughts, the mind will not be moved in hidden mysteries, and without the confidence that comes through faith, the soul cannot dare to withstand temptations with boldness. Moreover, without actual experience of God's protection, the heart cannot hope in him, and if the soul does not taste Christ's suffering consciously, she will never have communion with him. Deem him to be a man of God who by reason of much compassion has mortified himself, even with regard to necessary wants. For he who gives alms to a poor man has God to take care of him, and a man who has become poor for his sake has found inexhaustible treasures. God has no need of anything, but he is gladdened whenever he sees a man comforting his image and honoring it for his sake. When someone asks you for something you have, do not say in your heart, I shall keep this for myself that I may be comforted by it, and God will supply him with his need from elsewhere. For these are the words of the unrighteous and of those who, who know not God. A righteous and kindly man does not give his honor to another, nor does he permit an occasion for charity to pass him unused. The poor and indignant man is provided for by God because God abandons no one. But as for you, you have shunned the honor given you by God and have estranged his grace from you by turning a beggar away. So... Whenever you give, be glad, and say, Glory be to thee, O God, for thou hast deemed me worthy to find a man to comfort. But if you do not have anything to give, rejoice the more, and say, offering great thanks to God, I thank thee, my God, that thou hast granted me this grace and honor to go in want for thy name's sake, and hast deemed me worthy to taste the affliction that is set in the path of thy commandments, with sickness and want, such as thy saints who walked this path did also taste. 
and whenever you are ill, say, blessed are they who discover the object which God has placed in what he brings us upon us to profit us. For God administers sicknesses for the health of our soul. For one of the saints said, I have taken note of the following, that a monk who does not serve the Lord in a God-pleasing manner, who does not strive earnestly for his soul's salvation, but remains heedless regarding the exercise of virtues, is most assuredly allowed by God to fall prey to temptation so that he will not idle, be idle, and from his excessive idleness lapse into a worse state. This indeed is why God inflicts temptations upon the lazy and heedless, that they may be preoccupied with these and not with frivolous things. This God always does with those who love him. But if he sees that they begin to disregard his works, he sends a great trial upon them, that he may chasten them, make them wise, teach them his will. And whenever they pray to him, he does not quickly hear to them, hearken unto them, but waits until they grow weary and have learned in no uncertain manner that these things befell them because of their slothfulness and negligence. For it is written, When you spread forth your hands unto me, I will turn my eyes from you. And if ye multiply your prayer, I will not hearken unto you. For even if this was said of others also, nonetheless it was written especially about those who have abandoned the way of the Lord. But since we say that God is plenteous in mercy, why is it that when amidst temptations we unceasingly knock and pray, we are not heard, and he disregards our prayer? This we are clearly taught by the prophet when he says, The Lord's hand is not little that it cannot save, nor is he heavy of hearing that he cannot hear. But our sins have separated us from him, and our iniquities have turned his face away, that he doth not hearken. Remember God at all times, and he will remember you whenever you fall into evils. Your nature has become receptive to accidental occurrences. The temptations of the present world have multiplied, and evils are not far from you, but well up inside you when he gives a sign, and from under your feet and from the place where you are standing. As the eyelids come close to each other, even so are temptations close to men. But God has ordered these things with wisdom for your profit, so that you would knock persistently at his door, and that by your fear of what oppresses you, the remembrance of him might be sown in your mind, and you might draw him to you through your entreaties, and your heart might be sanctified by constant remembrance of him. When you pray, he will hearken to you, and you will learn that God is the one that delivers you, and you will perceive him who fashioned you, provides for you, protects you, and who has for your sake created two worlds, one as a teacher and for a while your chastiser, but the other as your ancestral home and your internal inheritance. God did not make you immune to things that are grievous, lest in aspiring to divinity you inherit what Satan inherited. But likewise, neither has he created you undeviating and fixed, lest you be like the nature of creatures not endured with rational souls, and the good things within you be of no profit to you and bring you no recompense, as is the case with irrational beasts, since their nature, their animal nature merits profit them nothing. 
for how much benefit thanksgiving and humility is produced by the incursion of these spurs is an easy matter for all to learn of themselves. Now it is clear that to strive after any good and to turn away from evil is within our power. Thus, the honor and disgrace which come of these are to be ascribed to us. When we are put to shame by disgrace, we are afraid. But receiving honor, we offer thanks to God and stretch ourselves out toward virtue. God has made these instructions plentiful for you, thus being free from them and immune to and having no part in tribulations, and feeling yourself superior to every fear, you should forget the Lord your God and turn away from him, and fall to believing in many gods, just as many have done. For although these men had a passable nature like your own, were subject to want and were scourged with these very griefs, yet in a brief space of time, because of paltry riches, fleeting power, and ephemeral health, they not only fell into polytheism, but in their madness, they had the audacity to declare themselves gods by nature. For this reason, then, he allows you to be amidst afflictions. But sometimes it is in order that you should not, by turning away, provoke him to wrath. And he, with the melting out, the metting out of punishment, destroy you utterly from before his face. I shall not speak of ungodliness and the other blasphemies, which are bred of a life led in prosperity and in the absence of fear, even though what was mentioned above should not come to pass. For this reason, then, he has made his remembrance abound in your heart by means of sufferings and griefs, and he has spurred you toward the gate of his mercy with the fear of hostile forces. And by means of deliverance from these things, he has implanted in you seeds of love for him. And when you lay hold of love, he brings you to the honor of sonship, shows you how abundant is his grace and how constant is his care for you. Then he will cause you to perceive both the holiness of his glory and the secret mysteries of his nature's grandeur. Whence could you have known these things if adversities had never befallen you? Since it is especially owing to these that the love of God can be augmented in your soul, owing, that is, to the perception of his graces and memory of the many acts of his providence. All these things, all these good things are born to you from grievous circumstances, so that you might learn to give thanks. Remember God, that he too might always remember you. And when he has kept you in his memory and preserved you safe to the end, you will receive every blessing from him. Do not forget him, your mind being distracted with futile concerns, lest he forget you in the time of your warfare. When you enjoy abundance, be obedient to him, so that in the time of your afflictions you may have boldness before him through the heart's persevering prayer to him. Seat yourself before the Lord continually, keeping the memory of him in your heart, lest having lingered outside his memory, you are unable to speak boldly when you enter in before him, because boldness with God comes from constant conversing with him and from much prayer. Our connection and continuance with men is through the body, but our connection and continuance with God is through the soul's recollection and the vigilance and whole burnt offering of frequent prayer. From long continuance and recollection of him, a man is transported at times to astonishment and wonder. For the heart of them that seek the Lord shall rejoice. 
Seek ye the Lord, ye condemned, and be strengthened with hope. Seek his face through repentance, and sanctify yourselves by the holiness of his face, and you will be thoroughly purged from your sins. Run to the Lord, all you that are guilty of sin, to him that has the power to pardon sins and overlook transgressions. For he has spoken to his prophet an oath, saying, As I live, saith the Lord, I desire not the death of a sinner, but that he should return and live. And again, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious and gainsaying people. And again, wherefore do ye die the death, O house of Israel? And again, return to me, and I will return unto you. And again, in what day soever the sinner shall return from his way, and return unto the Lord, and execute judgment and righteousness, I will not remember his iniquities. But living he shall live, saith the Lord. And if the righteous shall forsake his righteousness, and if sinning he do wrong, I will not remember his righteousness, but will lay a stumbling block before him, and he shall die in the darkness of his works, because he abode in them. Why so? Because the sinner will not stumble over his sin when he returns to the Lord, and the righteousness of the just will not redeem him when he sins, if he persists in such sinning. But God spoke this also to Jeremiah. Take thee a parchment, and write all things that I have spoken unto thee from the days of Josias, king of Judah, unto this day, all the evil things that I spake unto thee, saying that I would bring them upon this people, that when he hath heard it and been afraid, a man might forsake his wicked way, and returning they may repent, and I make, may take away their sins. And wisdom has said, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses, confesses his sins and leaves the same behind him shall bring down mercy from God. And Isaiah says, Seek ye the Lord, and when you have found him, call upon him. And when he shall draw nigh, let the sinner forsake his privy way, and the man of iniquity his thoughts, and return unto me, and I will have mercy upon you. For my thoughts are not as your thoughts, neither are my ways as your ways. If then you hear me, ye shall eat the good of the land. Come unto me and obey me, and with your soul ye shall live. Whenever you keep the ways of the Lord and do his will, then put your hope in the Lord and call on him. And as soon as ye cry out, he will say to you, Behold, I am here. When temptation overtakes the iniquitous man, he has no confidence wherewith to call upon God, nor to expect salvation from him, since in the days of his ease he stood aloof from God's will. Before the war begins, seek after your ally. Before you fall ill, seek out your physician. And before grievous things come upon you, pray, and in the time of your tribulations you will find him, and he will hearken to you. Before you stumble, call out and make supplication. And before you make a vow, have ready what things you promise. For they are your provisions afterwards. The ark of Noah was built in the time of peace, and its timbers were planted by him a hundred years beforehand. In the time of wrath, the iniquitous perished, but the ark became the shelter for the righteous man. The iniquitous mouth is stopped during prayer. For the condemnation of the conscience deprives a man of his boldness. A good heart joyously sheds tears in prayer. Voluntarily and steadfast endurance of injustice purifies the heart. 
patient endurance of injustice springs from disdain for the world, and a man endures calumny cheerfully because his heart has become begun to behold the truth, joy arising from voluntary endurance of calumny and injustice exalts the heart. They for whom the world is dead submit to contumelies with joy, but they for whom the world still lives cannot submit to injustice. Either moved by vainglory, they are provoked to anger and are troubled, being stirred up in the manner of brutes, or else they are overcome by grief. Oh, how difficult it is to attain this virtue, and how much glory it procures from God. He who would attain to this virtue must depart from his kinsmen and live the life of a stranger, for he cannot attain it in his homeland. Only such as are great and mighty are fit to endure the anguish of this virtue among their kindred. To these the world has died, and they have no hope of consolation from this present age. As grace accomplishes humility, so do painful incidents accompany pride. The eyes of the Lord are upon the humble to make them glad, but the face of the Lord is against the proud to make them humble. Humility always receives mercy from God, but hardness of heart and littleness of faith contend with fearful encounters until suddenly and unexpectedly disaster rises up against them and surrenders them to speedy destruction. In all respects, belittle yourself before all men, and you will be raised above the princes of this age. Anticipate every person with you greeting and your bow, and you will be more highly prized than those who bring the gold of Sophia as a gift. Be contemptible in your own eyes, and you will see the glory of God in yourself. For where humility burgeons, there God's glory wells forth. If you strive to be slighted, slighted openly by all men, God will cause you to be glorified. If you have humility in your heart, then in your heart God will show you his glory. Be disdained in your greatness and not great in your insignificance. Endeavor to be despised and you will be filled with the honor of God. Seek not to be honored while within you you are filled with wounds. Depreciate honor that you may be honored and do not love it that you be not dishonored. Honor flees away from before the man that runs after it, but he who flees from it, the same will it hunt down and will become to all men a herald of his humility. If you treat yourself with contempt so as to be honored, God will expose you publicly. Yet if you disparage yourself for the sake of the truth, God will move all his creatures to him your praise. They will open up before you the door of your Creator's glory, and they will praise you like the Creator, because you are truly in his image and after his likeness. Who has seen a man shining throughout with the virtues, but vile seeming to men, radiant in his life, wise in knowledge, and humble in his spirit? Blessed is he who humbles himself in all things, for he will be exalted in all. For a man who for God's sake humbles himself and thinks meanly of himself is glorified by God. The man who hungers and thirsts for God's sake, God will make drunk with his good things. And he who goes naked for God's sake is clad by him in a robe of incorruption and glory. And he who becomes poor for his sake is consoled with his true riches. Set yourself at naught for God's sake, and without your knowing it, your glory will be multiplied all through your life. 
Hold yourself a sinner that you may be righteous throughout your life. Be scorned when you are wise and do not be a fool in your wisdom. Be unlearned in your wisdom and do not seem wise being unlearned. And if humility exalts the simple and ignorant, consider how much honor it will procure for the great and highly esteemed. Flee vainglory, and you will be glorified. Fear pride, and you will be magnified. For pomposity has not been assigned to the sons of men, nor haughtiness to the offspring of women. If you have voluntarily renounced all things in this life, by no means quarrel with any man over anything at all. If you have come to detest praise, avoid those who chase after glory. Avoid the acquisitive, even as you would acquisition. Keep yourself away from the wanton, even as you would from wantonness. Avoid the intemperate, even as you would intemperance. For if even the memory of the people mentioned troubles our thought, how much more will the sight of them and the life conducted by them? Draw nigh to the righteous, and through them you will come near to God. Associate with those who have humility, and you will learn their ways. For if the mere sight of those here mentioned is beneficial, how much more the example of their lives and instructions of their mouths. Love the poor, that through them you may also find mercy. Do not keep company with the the argumentative, lest you be forced to take leave of your calm. Bear the noisome smells of the sick without disgust, and especially of the poor, since you too are wrapped about with a body. Do not rebuke those who are afflicted in heart, lest you be scourged with the self-same rod as theirs. Then you will seek consolation and will find none. Do not disdain those who are deformed from birth, because all of us will go to the grave equally privileged. Love sinners, but hate their works, and do not despise them for their faults, lest you be tempted by the same. Remember that you share the earthly nature of Adam, that you are clothed with his infirmity. Do not reprove those who are in need of your prayers, and do not withhold tender words of comfort to them, lest they perish, and their souls be required of you. But do as the physicians, who cure the diseases which are more feverish with cooling remedies and the more chilling with their opposites. When you meet your fellow men, constraint yourself to pay him more honor than is his due. Kiss his hands and feet. Often take his hands with deep respect. Put them over your eyes and praise him for what he does not even possess. And when he parts from you, say every good thing about him whenever it may be that that commands respect. For by these and similar acts you draw him to good and make him feel ashamed because of the gracious names by which you have called him, and you sow the seeds of virtue in him. From behavior such as this, to whom you accustomed yourself, a good pattern is also imprinted in you, and you gain much humility for yourself and achieve great things without toil. And not only this, but if he has any faults or voluntary imperfections, He will readily accept correction from you when he is honored by you, being ashamed because of the respect which you have shown of him and the proof of love he continually sees in you. Let this always be the aim of your conduct, to be courteous and respectful to all. And do not provoke any man or vie zealously with him, either for the sake of the faith or on account of his evil deeds, But watch over yourself, not to blame or accuse any man in any matter. For we have a judge in the heavens who is impartial. 
But if you would have that men return to the truth, be grieved over him, and with tears and love say a word or two unto him. But do not be inflamed with anger against him, lest he see within you signs of hostility. For love does not know how to be angry, or provoked, or passionately to reproach anyone. The proof of love and knowledge is profound humility, which is born of a good conscience in Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory and dominion with the Father and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, even unto the ages of ages. Amen. Homily 6 That to our prophet God has permitted the soul to be susceptible to accidents and on ascetical activities. The fact that a man slips into accidental sins demonstrates the weakness of his nature. For to our prophet God has permitted our nature to be susceptible to sinful occurrences. For he has not thought it good to make the soul superior to these occurrences before the second regeneration. It is profitable for the soul to be susceptible to accidental sins because this pricks the conscience. To persist in them, however, is audacious and shameful. There are three ways by which every rational soul can draw nigh to God. By fervency of faith, by fear, and by the Lord's chastisement. No man can draw nigh to the love of God if one of these three does not lead the way. Just as turbulence of the thoughts is born of gluttony, so ignorance and frivolousness of the mind are born of talkativeness and unruly conversations. Concern for the affairs of this life disturb the soul, and the distraction of works confuses the mind and casts out its serenity. The monk who has given himself over to a celestial husbandry must always and continuously be without any care for the things of this life, so that when he enters inside himself, he will find nothing at all of the present age there, nor thought concerning anything visible. For when he is unengaged with these things, he will be able without distraction to meditate in the law of the Lord both day and night. Bodily labors unaccompanied by purity of mind are like a barren womb and withered breasts, for they cannot bring a man to the knowledge of God. They greatly weary the body, yet they take no pains to uproot the passions from the mind. For this reason, bodily laborers reap no harvest. Like a man who sows in a briar patch and then is unable to reap, such is the man who corrupts his thinking with anxiety, remembrance of wrongs, and covetousness, and then groans upon his bed because of his many vigils and great abstinence. Scripture testifies concerning this, saying, As a people that had done righteousness and had not forsaken the commandments of the Lord, they now ask of me righteousness and truth, and wish to draw nigh to me their God, saying, Why have we fasted, and thou regardest not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and thou didst not know it? Nay, in the day of your fasts you do your own wills, that is, your wicked desires. Ye offer them as whole burnt offerings unto idols, and unto the wretched thoughts, which you reckon in yourselves as gods. You daily sacrifice your free will, a thing more precious than all incense, which you ought rather to consecrate unto me by your good works and your purity of conscience. Good soil, which gladdens its husbandmen by bringing forth fruit a hundredfold, is a soul that is made radiant by the remembrance of God and unsleeping vigil both day and night. The Lord 
establishes on her steadfastness, a cloud that overshadows her by day, and with a flaming light he illuminates her by night. Within her darkness a light shines. As a cloud veils the light of the moon, so the vapors of the belly banish the wisdom of God from the soul. What the flame of fire is to dry wood, this also is bodily lust to a full belly. As combustible matter added to combustible matter increases the flames of a fire, so succulence of foods increases the lustful movements of the body. The knowledge of God does not dwell in a pleasure-loving body, and the man who loves his own body will not obtain divine gifts. Just as from labor pangs a fruit is born that delights its mother, so from toil there is born in the soul the knowledge of the mysteries of God. But slothful and pleasure-loving men reap the fruit of shame. As a father cares for his child, so Christ also cares for the body, enduring hardships for his sake, and he is near to its mouth at all times. Priceless is the possession of labor wrought with wisdom. A stranger is he whose mind is estranged from all things of life. A mourner is he who passes all the days of his life in hunger and thirst for the sake of his hope and good things to come. A monk is he who remains outside the world and is ever supplicating God to receive future blessings. A monk's wealth is the comfort that comes of mourning and the joy that comes of faith, which shines in the secret places of his mind. A merciful man is he who does not distinguish mentally between men, but has mercy on all alike. A virgin is not merely one who keeps his body undefiled by intercourse, but one who feels shame before himself even when he is alone. If you love chastity, banish shameful thoughts by exercising yourself in reading and prolonged prayer, then you will be inwardly armed against their natural causes. But without reading and prayer, purity cannot be present in the soul. If you wish to acquire mercifulness and almsgiving, first accustom yourself to disdain all things, lest by their oppressiveness your mind be drawn away from its self-imposed aim. For the exactness of mercy is shown in patiently enduring injustice. The perfection of humility is to bear false accusations with joy. If you are truly merciful, do not grieve inwardly when you are unjustly deprived of something you possess, and do not tell others of your loss. Nay, rather, let the loss you suffer from others be swallowed up by your mercy, as the sharp edge of wine is swallowed up by much water. Show the fullness of your mercy by the good with which you repay those who have done you injustice, as did the blessed Eliseus with his enemies who intended to take him captive. For when he prayed and their eyes were blinded by mist, he manifested the power that was in him, and if he had wished, they would have been annihilated before him. And when he gave them to eat and drink and permitted them to depart, he manifested the mercy that was in him. A man who is truly humble is not troubled when he is wronged, and he says nothing to justify himself against the injustice, but he accepts slander as truth. He does not attempt to persuade men that he is culminated, and he begs forgiveness. Some have voluntarily drawn upon themselves the repute of being licentious, while they are not such. Others have endured the charge of adultery, being far from it. 
and proclaimed by their tears that they bear the fruit of the sin that they had not committed, and have wept, asking their offenders forgiveness for the iniquity they had not done, their souls all the while being crowned with all purity and chastity, others lest they be glorified because of the virtuous state which which they have hidden within them, have pretended to be lunatics, while in truth they were permeated with divine salt and securely fixed in serenity, so that because of their uttermost perfection they had holy angels as heralds of their deeds and valor. You think that you possess humility. Other men accuse themselves. But while you cannot even bear to be accused by others, you reckon yourself humble. If you are humble by these things, try yourself, whether or not you are troubled when you suffer injustice. The Savior calls the many mansions of his Father's house the noetic levels of those who dwell in that land, that is, the distinctions of the gifts and the spiritual degrees which they noetically take delight in, as well as the diversity of the ranks of the gifts. But by this, he did not mean that each person yonder will be confined in his existence by a separate spatial dwelling and by the manifest distinguishing mark of the diverse placement of each man's abode. Rather, it resembles how each one of us derives a unique benefit from this visible sun through a single enjoyment of it common to all, each according to the clarity of his eyesight and the ability of his pupils to contain the sun's constant effusion of light. And again, it is just as a lamp in one house diversely distributes the benefit of its light, although by the diversity of its appearance the lamp is not substantially divided up into many, losing the simplicity of its radiance. For in the same manner those who at the appointed time will be deemed worthy of that realm will dwell in one abode which will not be divided into a multitude of separate parts. And according to the rank of his disciple, each man draws delight for himself from one noetic sun in one air, one place, one dwelling, one vision, and one outward appearance. He whose measure is less will not see the great measure of his neighbor's rank, lest he should think that this arises from the multitude of his neighbor's gifts and the fewness of his own, and this very thing should become for him a cause of sadness and mental anguish. Far be it that one should suppose such a thing to occur in that realm of delights. Each man inwardly takes delight in the gift and the lofty rank whereof he has been deemed worthy. But the vision that is outside them all is one, and the place is one. And what is truly greater, their dwelling will be like that of the angelic host in the unity of the ethereal place, in the uniformity of the clear vision and the secret knowledge which belongs to their own ranks, through the revelations of divine vision which differs according to their orders. If indeed eternal beings possess beyond the operation of sense perception, intellections of the mind, then no one will be so bold as to declare by his words that in the world to come there will be an order of things differing from this one, that is, from the order of the understanding, and what is beyond, though indeed on account of the perfection of nature, then this is very evident. True, therefore, <clears throat> is the word spoken by the fathers that on the one hand ignorance will exist for an undetermined time, <clears throat> and on the other, there is a time reserved for the revelation of its abolition. 
and also for the revelation of the rest of those special mysteries regarding the Supreme Being, which are delimited by silence. Besides the state that is completely on high and the state that is absolutely below, in the future separation there will be no middle realm between them. A man will either belong entirely to those who dwell on high or entirely to those below. But within both one state and the other, there are varying degrees of recompenses. If this is true, which it most certainly is, what is more senseless and foolish than those who say that it is sufficient for me to escape Gehenna, but I do not seek to enter into the kingdom? For to escape Gehenna means precisely to enter the kingdom, even as to fall away from the kingdom is to enter Gehenna. Scripture has not taught us the existence of three realms, but when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. He did not speak of three orders, but two, one on the right and one on the left, and he definitely separated the distinctions of their dwelling places, saying, The righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, but sinners shall depart into everlasting fire. And again, many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, a thing more dreadful than any fire. Have you not understood by these things that falling short of the order on high is namely the Gehenna of torment? It is an excellent thing to teach men that which is good and by constant care to draw them away from delusion and into the knowledge of life. This is the path of Christ and the apostles, and it is very lofty. But if a man perceives in himself that through such a way of life and continual communion with men, his conscience is weakened by seeing external things, his serenity is disturbed, and his knowledge is darkened. Since his mind must still be guarded, and his senses must still be held in submission, and that while he seeks to heal others, he loses his own health, and departing from the chaste freedom of his will, his mind is shaken, then let him remember the apostolic exhortation which says, Strong food belongeth to them that are more perfect. Let him turn back, lest he hear from the Lord the words of the proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Let him condemn himself. Let him watch over his own good health. Instead of audible words, let his excellent manner of life serve for edification. And instead of the sounds of his mouth, let his works teach others. And when he keeps his soul healthy, let him profit others and heal them by his own good health. For when he is far from men, he can benefit them even more by the zeal of his good works than by his words, since he himself is sickly and is in greater need of healing than they. For if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Strong food belongs to those who are healthy, whose senses are exercised, who are able to take every kind of nourishment, that is, the invasions of all the senses, and by reason of their training in perfection are able to endure every encounter without their heart being harmed. When the devil wishes to defile with recollections of fornication a mind that is resplendent with purity, he first tests its constancy by the love of vainglory, 
since the inception of this thought has no appearance of passion. He constantly acts thus with men who guard their mind, and in whom he cannot readily introduce an unseemly thought. But when a man departs from his fortress through converse with his first thought and moves away from his refuge, the devil immediately confronts him with something pertaining to fornication and turns his mind to licentious subjects. At first, the man is troubled by this sudden onslaught since his thoughts were formerly chaste and his chastity had forestalled those things from the sight of which his governing mind was separated. Yet even though he was not completely defiled, the devil has succeeded in debasing him from his former dignity. But if he does not turn back and swiftly seize upon his first thoughts of vainglory, which are the cause of the second, when he often encounters these things, then through the frequency of their occurrence, this habit will blind his soul's faculty of discernment. Thus, the greater the magnitude and extent of the first passion, the greater is the subjugation to the second. It is better and easier to elude the passion by the recollection of the virtues than by resisting and disputing with them. For when the passions leave their place and arise for battle, they imprint on the mind images and idols. And this warfare has great force, able to weaken the mind and violently to perturb and confuse a man's thinking. But if a man acts by the first rule we have mentioned, when the passions are repulsed, they leave no trace in the mind. Purity is guarded by bodily toil and study of the divine scriptures. Toil is made steadfast by hope and fear, and hope and fear are established in the mind by withdrawal from men and unceasing prayer. Until a man has received the Comforter, he requires the divine scriptures to imprint the memory of good in his heart, to keep his striving for good constantly renewed by continual reading, and to preserve his soul from the subtleties of the ways of sin. For he has not yet acquired the power of the spirit that drives away that delusion, which takes soul-profiting recollections captive and makes a man cold through the distraction of his mind. When the power of the spirit has penetrated the noetic powers of the active soul, then in place of the law of the scriptures, the commandments of the spirit take root in his heart, and a man is secretly taught by the spirit and needs no form of sensory matter. For so long as it is from matter that the heart has its teaching, error and forgetfulness straightway follow the lesson. But when teachings comes from the spirit, its memory is kept inviolate. There are good thoughts and good volitions. There are evil thoughts and an evil heart. The first without the second are little accounted for a recompense. The first level is a movement that passes through the mind like a sea wind that stirs up the waves. But the second level is a groundwork and a foundation, and in proportion to the extent of the foundation, and not according to the movement of the thoughts, the recompense for good and evil is meted out. The soul does not have rest from the movement of changing thoughts, and if you were to mete out a recompense for each thought, though it has no foundation in the heart, nearly ten thousand times a day you would change your good recompenses and determine your judgment. 
the mind that has newly come forth from the intricate bonds of the passions by repentance and strives to rise above earthly matters at the time of prayer is an unfledged bird, and since it is still unable to take flight, it hops upon the face of the earth where the serpent slithers. Yet, with the help of reading, labor, fear, and care for the many virtues, it gathers together its deliberations, for it is incapable of knowing anything else except these. And for a short time this keeps the mind unperturbed and undefiled, but later memories arise, and these trouble and defile the heart. For the man has not yet sensed the still air of freedom which gathers the noose for a long span of time by forgetting all earthly things. For the noose has acquired only physical feathers, that is, virtues performed outwardly, but has not yet beheld the divine vision belonging to the virtues and it practices, and it has not perceived that this is the wing of the mind, the noose, wherewith it draws nigh to celestial things and takes leave of those of earth. So long as a man serves the Lord through palpable things, images of these things imprint themselves in his thoughts, and he reflects upon the divine and material images. But whenever he receives perception of that which lies within things, immediately according to the measure of that perception, his noose will be exalted above the images of things at sundry times. The eyes of the Lord are upon the humble of heart, and his ears are opened unto their supplication. The prayer of a humble man is like a word spoken from the mouth into an ear, O Lord my God, thou wilt enlighten my darkness. When you dwell in stillness and possess the work of humility, this will be a sign for you that your soul is nigh to emerging from darkness. Your heart is aflame and hot like fire both night and day, such that all the world is for you refuse and ashes. And you have no desire even for food by reason of the sweetness of the new and flaming thoughts constantly arising in your soul. Suddenly, like a freely flowing torrent, you are given fountains of tears mingled with all your works, with your reading, with your prayer, with your psalmody, with your recollection, reflections, your eating and your drinking into your every work, your tears are joined. When you see this in your soul, be of good courage, for you have crossed the sea. And so add to your labors, stand watchfully on guard, that grace may increase in you day by day. But if you have not experienced this, you have not yet completed your journey to reach the mountain of God. If, however, after you have found and received the gift of tears, they cease, and your fervency should cool, though there be no other change, as, for instance, bodily infirmity, then woe to you. What have you lost? For you have fallen into self-esteem, or heedlessness, or sloth. But what follows upon tears once, a man has received them, and what he afterwards encounters we shall describe in another place in the chapters on the successive order of monastic disciplines even as we have been enlightened by the scriptures and the fathers to whom these mysteries have been entrusted. If you have no works, do not speak on virtues. Afflictions suffered for the Lord's sake are more precious to him than every vow and sacrifice, and the odor of their sweat surpasses every fragrance. 
and sacrifice and, and choice incense. Regard every virtue performed without bodily toil as premature, stillborn fruit of the womb. The offering of the righteous is the tears of their eyes, and their acceptable sacrifice is their sighings during vigil. The righteous, burdened by the weight of their body, cry out dolefully to the Lord and send forth their supplications to God with pain. And at the cry of their voice, the angelic orders stand close at hand to aid them, to encourage them with hope, and to comfort them. For the holy angels are partakers of the sufferings and the tribulations of the saints through their nearness to them. Rightly directed labors and humility make a man a god upon earth. Faith and mercy speed him on the way to limpid purity. Fervency and contrition of heart cannot dwell simultaneously in one soul, even as drunken men cannot have control of their thinking. For when the soul is given this fervor, the contrition of mourning is taken away. Wine has been given for gladness and fervor for the rejoicing of the soul. The former warms the body in the word of God, the understanding. Those who are inflamed by fervor are ravished by the meditations of hope, and their mind is caught away to the future age. Just as men drunken with wine imagine diverse hallucinations, even so men drunken and made fervent by hope are conscious neither of affliction nor of anything worldly. This and other like things that are prepared for those who journey the path of successive disciplines after they have practiced the prolonged labors of purification occur in the very beginning of the way to the simpler of heart and more fervent in hope, and this is by reason of the soul's faith alone. All that the Lord willeth, he doeth. Blessed are they who for the sake of their love of God have girded their loins with simplicity and an unquestioning disposition to meet the sea of afflictions and do not turn their backs. Such men speedily find refuge in the promised haven and find rest in the tents of those who have toiled well. Their souls are led out of their tribulations and they exult in the joy of their hope. Those who hasten onward With hope, do not turn their gaze toward the perils of the way, nor do they stop to examine it. But only when they have crossed the sea do they look back upon the treacherous path and give thanks unto God for how he delivered them from gorges, precipices, and the craggy way, while they knew it not. Those, however, who ponder over many deliberations, who strongly desire to be prudent and give themselves over to intricate and quailing thoughts, who are ever making ready and striving to foresee every peril, are for the most part always to be found sitting on the doorstep of their houses. When the sluggard is sent in the way, he saith, There is a lion in the way, and murderers in the streets. And those who say, like the sons of Israel, There we saw the sons of giants, and we were before them as grasshoppers, are those who will be found still journeying on the way at the time of their death, who always desire to be very prudent, but who never wish at all to make a beginning. The simple and unlearned man who sets out swimming passes through the waters, retaining his first ardor, having no care at all for his body, nor deliberating in himself whether his endeavor will in any way or wise succeed. 
Let not your much wisdom become a stumbling block to your soul and a snare before you, but trusting in God, manfully make a beginning upon the way that is filled with blood, lest always you be found wanting and naked of the knowledge of God. For he who is fearful or watches the winds sows not. Death and battle, for God's sake, is better than a shameful and sluggish life. When you wish to begin one of the works of God, first make a testament, like one who is no longer to live in this life, like a man who is prepared for death and has despaired of his present life, and as though you have reached your four-appointed time. Hold this unwaveringly in your mind, that hope for this present life may not hinder you from struggling and being victorious. For the hope of the this present life enfeebles the thinking. Therefore do not become overwise, but rather give place in your mind to faith, and remember the days after your death. And slackness will never enter in upon you, according to the word of the wise man who said, A thousand years of the present age are not like one day in the age of the righteous. Begin every good work with fortitude and do not undertake such labors with a divided soul and let not your heart waver in its hope in the grace of God, lest your toil be profitless and the works of your husbandry be burdensome. Believe with your heart that the Lord is merciful and gives grace to those who seek him, not in proportion to our works, but according to the ardent love of our souls and our faith in him. For he says, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. The works of those who live according to God are the following. One man strikes his head all the day long and does this instead of the hours of his services. Another joins together the set number of his prayers by persevering in continual prostrations. Another replaces the services by copious tears, and this suffices him because it seems better to him than anything else. Another is zealous in the meditation of his understanding and limits his, his appointed rule to this. Another torments his soul with hunger to the extent that he cannot perform the services. Another makes his service unceasing by continuing an ardent study of the Psalms. Another passes his time in reading and so kindles his heart. Another is taken captive as he comprehends the divine meaning of the divine scriptures. Another is restrained from his customary study and is held by silence in his astonishment at the wonder of the verses. But another, having tasted all these things and taken his fill, turned back and became inactive. Another, having tasted but a little of these things, became puffed up and fell into error. Another is prevented from keeping to his rule by grievous illness and weakness, yet Another, by the predominance of some habit, or desire, or ambition, or vainglory, or covetousness, or the desire to amass wealth. And another made progress, stood firmly, and did not turn back until he received the pearl of great price. Therefore, always make a beginning in God's work with joy and earnestness. And if you are pure from the passions and a doubting heart, God himself will raise you up to the summit, help you, and make you wise according to his will. And in a wondrous way, you will receive perfection. To him be glory and dominion and adoration and majesty, both now and ever, 
and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Homily 7 On the kinds of hope in God, and for whom it is right to put his hope in God, and who it is that entertains such hope foolishly and imprudently. There is a hope in God that comes through the faith of the heart, which is good, and which one possesses with discernment and knowledge. And there is another, a false hope, which is distorted and which derives its existence from folly. The man who pays no heed at all to the things that perish, but devotes himself entirely to the Lord both night and day, who gives thought to nothing worldly because of his great assiduity in the virtues, and occupies his every leisure moment with divine things, and for whom this reason neglects to procure food and clothing for himself, and the preparation of a place of shelter for his body, and all the rest. This man rightly and knowingly hopes in the Lord, for he will prepare his necessities for him. This truly is the hope which is both true and most wise. It is right for such a man to put his hope in God inasmuch as he is his servant and is diligent in his work, being free of any negligence due to any cause soever. To a man such as this, it is meet that God manifest his special attention because he has kept his commandment, which says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, and make no provision for the flesh. Whenever we manage ourselves in this way, the world, like some servant, will prepare all things for us, and will unhesitatingly submit to our words as to her masters, and will never set herself against our will. For it is so, as not to desist from his constant standing before God, that such a man does not allow himself to give thought to the necessities of his body. And because he takes no thought for anything else, and is equally void of all care for things small or great, which produce comfort or diversion or departure from the fear of God, he will be marvelously furnished even with these things, having neither given them thought nor labored for them. Very different, however, is the case with the man whose heart is completely buried in earthly concerns, who constantly eats dust with the serpent, who gives no thought at all to what is pleasing to God, who expends all his labors on corporal things, who is lax, who is continually engaged in concerns and the diversions of wantonness, and who grasps at every pretext for this. Because such a man has fallen away from virtue through his sloth and indolence, it is a different case with him whenever he suffers affliction or is deprived of some needful thing or the fruits of his foolish deeds cause him distress. And he says, I shall put my hope in God and he will relieve me of my worry and bring me comfort. O fool, until the present hour you would not remember God but have insulted him with your dissolute practices. And his name is blasphemed among the heathen through you, even as it is written. And now you dare to say with mouth open wide, In him shall I hope, and he will help me and take care of my concern. Well has God said by his prophet to the shame of such persons, They seek me daily and would learn my ways, as they that do righteousness and do not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask of me judgment and righteousness. He is a fool, therefore, who 
even mentally does not draw nigh to God, and yet, when he is surrounded by tribulations, lifts his hands to him with confidence. This man must be seared with hot iron many times over so that somehow he might be instructed. He possesses no work deserving of confidence in God. Rather, with his grievous practices and his negligence of his duties, he has rendered himself deserving of chastisement. Yet, for his mercy's sake, God, who is long-suffering, endures him. Therefore, let not such a one deceive himself and forget the level of his conduct and say that he hopes in God, for he will be chastised. When he does not possess the works of faith, let him not stretch out his feet in idleness and say, I trust God will provide me with my necessities, as though he were living in the labors of God. If on account of his own foolishness such a one falls into a well while he is walking, he says immediately, although formerly God had never entered his mind at all, And as for what happens now, I shall hope in God and he will deliver me. Err not, O fool. Toil for God's sake and sweat in his husbandry precedes hope in him. If you believe in God, you do well, but faith has need of labors also, and confidence in God is the good witness of the conscience, born of undergoing hardship for the virtues. Do you believe that God provides for his creatures and is able to do all things? Let suitable labor therefore follow on your faith, and then he will hear you. Think not to grasp the winds in your fist, that is, faith without works. Often it happens that a man unwittingly travels a road where there lies an evil wild beast, or murderers, or something of the kind. But the universal providence of God delivers him from injury, either by delaying him on his way for some reason, until the dangerous beast has gone off, or by an encounter with someone to make him turn aside from the road. And again, sometimes a venomous serpent is found lying in the road unseen, but God, not willing to surrender the man to this trial, suddenly makes the serpent hiss and withdraw from the place, or slither out in front of him, and the wayfarer, when he sees it put on his guard and is saved from it, even though he is undeserving on account of his secret sins, which only he knows. Yet God still rescues him for his mercy's sake. And again, it often happens that a house or a wall or a stone is about to fall, and it slips from its place without a splintering sound. But people are found sitting there, and in his love from men God commands an angel to hold it back and to keep it from falling until they rise up from thence or else under a certain pretext he leads them out so that no one is found underneath. But as soon as they go out, he straightway lets it fall. And even if it happens that someone is caught, he works the matter so that they are in no way hurt. By this God wishes to show the infinite magnitude of his power. All these things and their like, therefore, belong to God's universal and Catholic providence, and this grace the righteous man has inseparably with him. For God has bidden other men to manage their affairs with discretion and to combine their own knowledge with God's providence. But the righteous man has no need to manage his affairs through that knowledge, because instead of that knowledge, he possesses faith, by means of which he casteth down every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. 
and he will fear none of the things here enumerated. As it is written, the righteous man is bold as a lion, daring all things through faith, not as one who tempts the Lord, but as one who has confidence in him, and as one who is armed and arrayed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And because God is his constant concern, God will also say concerning him, I am with him in affliction, and I will rescue him and glorify him. With length of days will I satisfy him, and I will show him my salvation. The man who is lax, on the other hand, and who is indolent in his labor, cannot have that hope. This then belongs only to him who uninterruptedly abides in God in all things, who draws near him through the beauty of his works, and strains the gaze of his heart unceasingly toward his grace, as the divine David has said, From my hoping in my God my eyes have failed me. For unto him is due glory, honor, and worship unto the ages. Amen. Homily 8 On what helps a man to approach God in his heart, and what is the real cause that secretly brings help near him, and again, what is the cause that leads a man to humility? Blessed is the man who knows his own weakness, because this knowledge becomes to him the foundation, root, and beginning of all goodness. For whenever a man learns and truly perceives his own weakness, at that moment he contracts his soul on every side from the laxity that dims knowledge, and he treasures up watchfulness in himself. But no one can perceive his own infirmity if he is not allowed to be tempted a little either by things that oppress his body or his soul. For then, comparing his own weakness with God's help, he will straightway understand the greatness of the latter. And again, whenever he looks over the multitude of his devisings and his wakefulness, his abstinence, the sheltering and the hedging about of his soul by which he hopes to find assurance for her, and yet sees that he has not yet obtained it, or again, if his heart has no calm because of his fear and trembling, Then at that moment let him understand and let him know that this fear of his heart shows and reflects that he is altogether in need of some other help. For the heart testifies inwardly and reflects the lack of something by the fear that strikes and wrestles within it. And because of this it is confounded, since it is not able to abide in a state of surety. For God's help, it is said, is the help that saves." When a man knows that he is in need of divine help, he makes many prayers. And the more he multiplies them, his heart is humbled. For there is no man who will not be humbled when he is making supplication and entreaty. A heart that is broken and humbled, God will not despise. Therefore, as long as the heart is not humbled, it cannot cease from wandering. For humility collects the heart. But when a man becomes humble... At once mercy encircles him, and then his heart is aware of divine help, because it finds a certain power and assurance moving in itself. And when a man perceives the coming of divine help, and that it is this which aids him, then at once his heart is filled with faith, and he understands from this that prayer is the refuge of help, a source of salvation, a treasury of assurance, a haven that rescues from the tempest, a light to those in darkness, a staff of the infirm, a shelter in time of temptations, a medicine at the height of sickness, a shield of deliverance in war 
an arrow sharpened against the face of his enemies. And, to speak simply, the entire multitude of these good things is found to have its entrance through prayer. From this time forward, he revels in the prayer of faith. His heart glistens with clear assurance and does not continue in its former blindness and the mere speech of the tongue. When he thus perceives these things, he will acquire prayer in his soul, like some treasure. And from his great gladness, the form of prayer is turned into shouts of thanksgiving. This is the very thing pronounced by one who has defined the form proper to each of our actions. Prayer is joy that sends up thanksgiving. Here he speaks of the prayer that is achieved through the knowledge of God, that is, prayer that has been sent from God. For at that moment a man does not pray with labor and weariness, as in the rest of his prayer, which is prayed before the experiencing of this grace. And because his heart is full of joy and wonder, it continually wells up motions of confession and gratitude while he silently bows the knee. And from his vehement inner ardor, since he is very greatly moved by astonishment at this comprehension of God's graces, he suddenly raises his voice in praise and glorification of him and sends up thanksgiving, and he moves his tongue while being held with great awe. If any man has reached this in truth and not in fancy and has made many observations of this reality in himself and has come to know its many differences by reason of this great experience, he knows what I say, for there is nothing here contrary to the truth. And from this time forward, let him seize from pondering vanities, and let him remain with God by means of unbroken prayer, while being in anxiety and trepidation, lest he be deprived of the magnitude of God's succour. All these good things are born to a man from the recognition of his own weakness. For out of his craving for God's help, he presses on toward God by the petitions of his prayer, and to the extent that he draws near to God in his intention, God also draws near to him through his gifts and will not take his overshadowing away from him on account of his great humility. For just like the widow before the judge, he cries out to be avenged of his adversary. But for this very reason, the compassionate God defers in granting a man's requests, even so that this may become a cause for him to draw near to him and for his need's sake to stay close to him who is the brimming fount of succor. Some of his petitions God grants him promptly, I mean those without which no one can be saved, but some he withholds from him, and on certain occasions he restrains and dispels from him the scorching assault of the enemy, while on others he permits him to be tempted, and this trial may become to him a cause for drawing near to God, as I said before, and also that he may be instructed and have the experience of temptations." And such is the word of Scripture. The Lord left many nations without driving them out. Neither delivered he them into the hands of Jesus, the son of Navi, to chastise the sons of Israel by them, and that the tribes of the sons of Israel might be taught and learn war. For the righteous man who has no consciousness of his own weakness walks on a razor's edge and is never far from falling, nor from the ravening lion, I mean the demon of pride. And again, a man who does not know his own weakness falls short of humility, and he who falls short of this also falls short of perfection. And 
he who falls short of perfection, is forever held by dread. Because his city is not founded on pillars of iron, neither upon lintels of brass, that is humility. No man can acquire humility save by humility's own means, whereby the heart is made contrite and the deliberations of conceit are brought to naught. This is why the enemy often finds in him a slight cause, whereby he can deflect a man from the path. Without humility, the work of a man cannot be perfected, and the charter of his liberty does not yet bear the seal of the Spirit, but rather until now he is a slave, and his work does not rise above fear. For a man cannot correct his work without humility, and he is not instructed except through temptations, and without wisdom he does not acquire humility. Therefore, the Lord looses upon the saints the causes of humility, of a contrite heart, and of ardent, undistracted prayer, so that those who love him might draw nigh to him through humility. Often he jolts them with the passions of their nature and the intrusions of shameful and polluted thoughts, and often, too, by rebukes, insults, and the buffetings of men, but sometimes with diseases and bodily ailments, and at other times with poverty and the utter lack of pressing necessities, Sometimes it is with the torment of excessive fear which he permits to fall upon them in the open warfare of the demons, so as to trouble them strongly. But at times with dire variations, one more oppressive, grievous, and difficult than the next. All these things occur so that they may have causes to be humbled, and lest the slumber of negligence overtake them, either as regards those things from which the ascetic is wont to fall ill, or as regards the fear of things to come. Therefore, temptations are necessarily profitable to men. But I do not say this with the intent that a man should voluntarily allow himself to be made lax by shameful thoughts, that this may become to him a pretext of humility in his remembrance of them, nor do I mean that he should be assiduous to enter into further temptations, but rather that in cultivating good, he must be sober at all times and watch over his soul and reflect that he is a created being and therefore very liable to sudden change. For every created being is in need of God's power of assistance. and By his need of another's assistance, every man reveals his natural weakness. But the man who knows his own weakness must of necessity humble himself so that his need may be supplied by him who has the power to give it. And if he had known, known it from the beginning and had looked upon his weakness, he would have not have grown negligent. And if he had not grown negligent, he would not have slumbered and been given over to the hands of those who afflict him in order to wake him up. Therefore, whoever walks the path of God must give thanks to him for all the things that come upon him and revile and blame his own soul and know that he would not have been delivered over by his provider except because of some negligence, in order that his mind might be awakened or else because he has become puffed up. But he should not be troubled on this account, nor quit the arena and the fight, nor leave himself free of self-reproach, lest his evil grow twofold. For with God, who abundantly pours forth righteousness, there is no injustice. Far be it. Unto him be glory unto the ages. Amen. Homily 9. 
on sins voluntary and involuntary, and on those which are committed because of some accidental circumstance. There are sins that a man commits from weakness, being drawn into them against his will, and there are sins that a man commits voluntarily, and there are some that are from ignorance. Also, it happens that a man will sin owing to an accidental circumstance, or again, because of his long continuance in evil, or from habit. Although all these modes and kinds of sins are blameworthy, yet with respect to the punishment to be exacted for each, one is found to be comparatively greater than the other. The blame of one sin is very great, and its repentance is only accepted with difficulty, but another is more easily forgiven. Just as Adam, Eve, and the serpent all received from God the recompense of their sin, yet the curse which each one received differed greatly, so also with the sons of Adam and Eve. The severity of the punishment for a sin accords with a man's intention and his desire of sin. If a man does not wish to follow the way of sin, but notwithstanding he is drawn toward it on account of his negligence regarding virtue, since he does not practice it, even though it is grievous to him to be joined with sin, then his punishment will be severe. But if someone who is diligent in virtue should be tempted in some sin, then mercy is undoubtedly near him to cleanse him. It is one thing when a man is carefully diligent in virtue, constant in its works, and passes the night meditating upon it, lest he fall short in any of its duties. But although he should carry his burden around with him by day, and all his cares for virtue, still when he is engaged in such concerns, the scale of his balance sinks a little to the left, and he is drawn down by the weakness of the flesh into one of the forms of sin, either by reason of a certain ignorance or because of things that oppose him on his path, that is, on the path of virtue, and the billows that rise up in his members at every hour, or because of the aberration that is allowed to remain in him so that his free will might be tried. This causes him grief and anguish, and because of the misery that contrary things inflict upon him, he sighs painfully over his soul. But it is a very different thing when a man is found to be lax and heedless in the work of virtue, when he has utterly abandoned the path and runs slavishly to be subservient to every pleasure of sin, showing his zeal to invent means whereby he might enjoy it perfectly, and being ready like a slave assiduously to do the will of his enemy and to make his members weapons for the devil in complete obedience to him. He wishes not at all to give heed to repentance, neither to draw nigh to virtue, nor to cut off and put an end to the path of his destruction. Something else again are the slips and the falls which can occur on the path of virtue and the way of righteousness as the Holy Fathers write, saying that on the path of virtue and the way of righteousness there are falls, oppositions, compulsions, and the like. But something quite different is the death of the soul, complete destruction, and utter abandonment. By this it is evident that whenever a man falls, he should not forget the love of his father. And if it happens that he fall into manifold transgressions, he should not be negligent concerning the good, nor should he stop his onward course. But even though he was vanquished, 
he should rise up again to struggle against his adversaries and each day begin to lay a foundation for his ruined dwelling, having the words of the prophet in his mouth until his departure from this world. Rejoice not against me, mine enemy, that I have fallen, for I will rise again, and though I should sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. May he never cease from making war until his death, and as long as there is breath in his nostrils, may he not surrender his soul to defeat, even at the very moment of his defeat. But if each day his ship be broken up and his cargo perish in the deep, let him not cease from acquiring new possessions, training, and also from borrowing. Let him set out in other ships, sailing in hope, until the Lord, beholding his struggle and taking compassion on his ruin, send downs upon him his mercy and gives him powerful motivations to enable him to undergo and resist the flaming darts of the enemy. This is the wisdom which is granted by God, and this is the wise invalid who has not cut off his hope. It were better for us to be condemned on account of particular deeds than on account of our abandoning all. For this reason, Abba Martinian admonished us not to grow weary in the face of the many struggles and the diverse kinds of warfare that are met continuously on the path of righteousness, and not to turn back so as to give the enemy victory over us in some shameful manner. As a loving father, he enjoins these things in an orderly fashion, point by point. The admonition of St. Martinian, My children, if you are truly strugglers, men who pay heed to virtue and care for your souls, and you earnestly desire your mind to be limpidly pure before Christ, and to do that which is pleasing to him, then it surely behooves you to accept for his sake every warfare kindled by our nature's passions, the attractions of this world, the duration and persistence of the demon's wickedness with which they are accustomed to confront you, and all their snares. Do not grow faint-hearted because of the continuing and obdurate fierceness of the battle. Do not become hesitant because of the long duration of your struggle. Do not grow lax, neither be afraid of the hosts of your enemies. And if for a season you should perhaps stumble and sin, do not fall into the pit of despair. But if something should befall you in this great war, and you should even be wounded upon your face, let this in no wise hinder you from attaining your goal. Rather, persevere in the pursuit that you have chosen, and you will achieve that thing most desirable and praiseworthy, to prove steadfast and unmoving in war, reddened by the blood of your wounds. Never cease, therefore, from wrestling with your adversaries. Such are the admonitions of the great elder. Hence, because of what we have said, you should not grow lax or weak. But woe to that monk who has proved false to his vow, who, trampling upon his conscience, stretches forth his hand to the devil to enable the latter to exult over him because of one of the small or great modes of sin and who can no longer withstand his enemies since one part of his soul has been devastated. With what countenance will he look on when his companions who have attained purity will greet one another? For he has parted ways with them and walked the path of perdition. He has lost the boldness before God that the righteous possess, and the prayer that ascends from a pure heart, which is borne up above the angelic hosts and is not arrested until it has obtained its request, 
and returned with joy to the mouth that sent it forth. But what is more terrible, just as he has separated his path from theirs, so Christ will separate him from them in that day when the shining cloud will bear upon its back their bodies made resplendent by purity and carry them through the gates of heaven. For this reason the ungodly shall not stand up in judgment, since their works have been judged here already, nor sinners in the counsel of the righteous in the resurrection of judgment. Homily 10 On the words of the divine writings which urge men to repentance, and that they were said with a view to men's weakness, lest they perish from the living God, but that one must not employ them as an excuse for sinning. The encouragement that the fathers give in their divine writings, and the help for repentance that is found in the writings of the apostles and the prophets, must not not be employed by us as an aid for sinning and for breaking the Lord's inviolable decrees, which by the power of God were decreed from ancient times, through the mouth of all the saints and all their writings and legislations, in order to abolish sin. The fact that repentance furnishes hope should not be taken by us as a means to rob ourselves of the feeling of fear, so that one might more freely and fearlessly commit sin. For behold, how God in every wise preached fear in all the scriptures and showed himself to be a hater of sin. Why indeed was the generation of men in the days of Noah drowned in the deluge? Was it not because of their lasciviousness, which which they raged over the beauty of the daughters of Cain? At what time there was no avarice, no idolatry, no sorcery, no wars? Why were the cities of the Sodomites consumed by fire? Was it not because they gave their members over to lust and impurity, such that it dominated over all of them in every abominable and unnatural act, even as they willed? Was it not because of the fornication of one man that in one instant five and twenty thousand of the sons of Israel, the firstborn of God, fell and died? Why was the mighty man Samson rejected by God, he who was set apart and consecrated to God while still in the womb, whose birth was announced by an angel like John, the son of Zacharias? who was granted great power and worked great wonders, and by the supernatural strength which God poured into his body, smote a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass, and became a savior and judge unto Israel. Was it not because he defiled his holy members by union with a harlot? For this reason God departed from him and surrendered him to his enemies. And David, who was a man after God's own heart, who because of his virtues was found worthy to generate from his seed the promise of the fathers, and to have Christ shine forth from himself for the salvation of all the world, was he not punished because of adultery with a woman when he beheld her beauty with his eyes and was pierced in his soul by that arrow? For it was because of this that God raised up a war against him from within his own household, and he who came forth from his loins pursued him. These things befell him even after he had repented with many tears, such that he moistened his couch with his weeping, and after God had said to him, Through the prophet, the Lord hath forgiven thy sin. I wish also to bring to mind certain men before David, 
For what reason did wrath and death come upon the house of the priest Eli, the righteous elder who was eminent for forty years in his priesthood? Was it not because of the iniquity of his sons, Ophni and Phinehas? For neither did he sin, nor did they with his assent. But it was because he did not have the zeal to demand from the Lord the Lord's vindication, and he loved them more than the statutes of the Lord. Lest any surmise that the Lord manifests his wrath only upon those who pass all the days of their life in iniquities. Behold how for this unseemly sin he manifests his zeal against his genuine servants, against priests, judges, rulers, men consecrated to him, to whom he entrusted the working of miracles, and how he in no wise overlooks their transgression of his statutes. As it is written in Ezekiel, I said to the man whom I commanded to go into Jerusalem with an invisible sword, begin at my sanctuary and have no mercy upon the old man and the youth. Thus he showed that his true servants and friends are those who walk before him in fear and reverence and do his will, since virtuous deeds and purity of conscience are things holy and beloved of God. But when men repudiate his paths, the Lord repudiates them, casts them away from his face, and takes his grace away from them. For why was the sentence against Balthazar issued so swiftly, and why did it strike him down, as it were, in the form of a hand? Was it not because he acted with audacity toward the untouchable vessel of offering which he seized from Jerusalem, drinking out of them, both he and his concubines? In the same manner, those who have consecrated their members to God, but are so audacious as to use them once more for worldly deeds, the same perish, being smitten by an invisible blow. Therefore, let us not disregard the oracles and threats of God, by reason of our confidence and repentance and the good courage given us by the divine writings, and so anger him by our wicked deeds and defile our members that have been consecrated once and for all to the service of God. For lo, we have consecrated ourselves to him, as Elias, Elysius, and the sons of the prophets, and all the other saints and virgins who worked great wonders and spoke with God face to face. And further, as all those who came after them, John the Virgin, St. Peter, and the other heralds and preachers of the New Testament who consecrated themselves to the Lord, for whom they received the knowledge of mysteries, some from his very mouth, others through revelation, and who became intercessors between God and men, and receptacles of his revelations, and preachers of the kingdom to the whole world.